Lucifer means Lightbringer presents the mythical astronomy of ice and fire, the sacred order of green zombies, Old Crone's Round Table, Part One. Do we have a live stream or something? Well, I got, I got kind of carried away there. Thanks, guys, for uh, indulging me. That was a little bit of the holographics, which is my little project with my wifey, the Amethyst Koala. That song's all about Calypso, goddess of goddess of the sea. So it's a little thematic, if you will. But uh, these, I've got some amazing guests here who've been patiently waiting. So let me introduce them in turn. Ladies, keep your screens covered. Until I call out your name. We've got some costumes today, so I want to do the whole dramatic reveal. Uh, but first, first I shall uh, be joined by my Hand of the Dragon, Sanrixian. So go ahead and say hello, Sanri. Hello. Sorry. <laughs> Struggled to find that mute button again. How's everybody doing today? Hope you all enjoyed, enjoyed that super... I just I, I don't have words right now. I'm just so blown away. Oh, I wow. thank you. The, the Amethyst Koala does have a lovely voice. And uh, so, you know, we had some we had some fun making music. That was like six, seven years ago we were doing that. We kind of got onto different stuff now. But so let me introduce the rest of my panel. Um, I've got somebody that looks a lot like Lucifer Means Lightbringer, but is actually named Melanie Lot 7. Uh, can you please explain yourself? Melanie Means Lot 7 Bringer. Yes, sorry. I haven't had the chance to change my icon back. Sorry about oh, that. Oh, <laughs> there you are. There you are. I was going for the weirwood look today. So I don't know if I made it, but I put on my reddest lipstick and that's all I got. So <laughs> we'll forgive you for not clawing out your eyes. Um, all right. Thank you. Yeah, that's that's acceptable. You look lovely as always. Thanks, sir. Uh, and next up I have, looks like, oh, I've got Bail the Bard. Speaking of clawing out your eyes, right? Yes. <laughs> Lady Stoneheart in all of her glory with the rips and, wow, you look suitably undead. Good. Good. That's a, oh, that's a beautiful red smile you have there. Yes, show everyone. It is oh. a lovely red. There's my red smile. Bloody the, and ripped flesh and all. The vampire in me is getting thirsty, but we'll let that go. <laughs> I feel weird, like, smiling in this costume i feel like i shouldn't be like happy or laughing i should just be very serious but no, I'm not you don't, help it. no no you won't be able to stay in character you're too, you're too happy and joyful uh next i've got up from under winterfell maester mary say hello hello watch me remember to turn my camera back on it's so good to see everyone i am you know i'm just riffing on the old crone theme you know got all the uh the scary old crone vibes. I'm imagining I'm kind of like the the dressed up uh, show non-crusty version of Maggie the Frog because um, I can't do wart makeup. That would be really freaky. <laughs> I think you have a fantastic uh, Night's King's Corpse Queen look going on. Of course, oh, we're not sure. we're not sure what the range of of you know if she's more like Melisandre, like a sorceress, or more like a whited stone heart, but. Uh, You've definitely conjuring some sort of very cold, undead vibe there. And still looking lovely somehow. 
Kirk thing. Think about it. <laughs> and la- I saved our my bet our best costume for last. Archmaester Emma, say hello. I'm so terrible. I'm, I'm so terrible. Hello, everyone. This is me as me. It's a wonderful costume that I put so much effort into by putting on some lipstick. That's that's me. <laughs> She's a witch. You're, <laughs> a witch. We, you know, you're dressed Fair. up. As- you're dressed up as a lovely British lady, I see. Yes. Um, I I mean, I've got a Gryffindor like blanket on because I'm cold. Like that that works as witchiness, doesn't it? Right. T- tell us your feelings on Brexit. No, wait. No, no, don't. don't. Oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone who goes on Twitter can find out those. <laughs> yeah. E.L. E. L. Smith. Uh, what is it? E.L. Smith, 84? 1994. 1994. Oh, yeah. Okay. Very, very good. Very, that's right. The oh so creative. Uh, handle yeah. it. Yeah. So as guys, as you can see, I have a all-star lineup of Lady Myth heads here. And that is because I'm doing something a little different today. This is kind of Weird Compendium 8, uh, but it's not a fully scripted episode like we usually have. It's about half scripted. And I've got some points where I've scripted a little bit and then slated some discussion time. And basically we're going to be getting into a lot of the crone figures in the story which are going to either fall on the side of Ghost of Nissa Nissa, Weirwood Goddess, Corpse Queen, Knight's Queen, or somewhere in the middle. And that's what makes it complicated. Uh, so basically, I didn't have all this sorted out to the point where I could just write an essay and say, here's what I think. Um, I've got a certain amount of thoughts, but I've got also a lot of questions and I think room for exploration here. So I thought it would be more fun, more appropriate, and hopefully more productive if I invited some of our sharpest myth head minds on for discussion panel, and we're going to kick around some of these quotes and discuss and see what we can figure out. Um, we, I remember we had a, a live discussion about two months back where we got into some Knights Queen Nissa Nissa discussion, and it was really good. It was one of the best streams that we've done, honestly. So I think, I think the live sort of workshopping can really work and be entertaining, and that's what we're going to go for today. But I do have some scripted stuff. So we're going to get into that first. Um, but first, I got a couple announcements. If you don't know by now, we have T-shirts available. That's also thanks to San Rixian. Um, Those are available on her website. Sandry dropped the link. I'm sure you're doing it right now. And uh, we've already got 30 orders to do the first run of pre-orders. And we're taking the next batch of orders and we'll do another, you know, another run. I guess, Sandry, we're just waiting for another 30 before we can order it. Is that how it's going to work? Or? Uh, yeah, I'm going to try to get as many as I can close to 30. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just sent off the first batch. So yeah, contact me if you don't see a country that's listed or you can't, you have problems with the website or anything. My email is sanrixian at gmail.com and it's as easy as that. <laughs> so yeah, I'll get you taken care of. Cool. So, um, like I said, the, the link is right there. You can also just find it at sanrixian.com. You can find it in red text at the top of Lucifer, Lucifer It's right there too. Uh, so we're trucking on for that next batch of 30. So order them up. And of course, if you are one of the patrons from like over a year ago, when I promised a t-shirt to, uh, let me know and I will give you a code so you can go and order one and it will be free and it will be, it will come to you. So there you go. Let's see, actually, let me go ahead and check in. Uh, let's do the polite thing and check in with all of my guests and see what everyone's got going on. Give yourself a chance to tell everyone where they can find your work and what you're working on lately let's go in reverse order emma you are the uh 
The brilliant mind behind the Red My Said Play blog. Is that not correct? Um, thank you for the compliment. I am the mind. Don't know whether it's brilliant, but I am the mind behind the Red My Said Play dot uh, WordPress dot com. Um, I'm still working on Red Fire because it's like continuing forever. But thanks to David and some chats with the old myth heads, um, I have now got a subsection, and so now I'm trying to rework the essay to now fit that bit in and then finish it. So. But at least it makes sense to me now, which is good. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, it does. It does. Uh, sometimes you get that one last piece that helps things lock into place. So, Excellent. Redmiceaplay.wordpress.com. Uh, Bell the Bard from the Ball the Bard YouTube channel. Tell everyone what you got going on lately. Um, not as much as I would like. I just have a lot of um, stuff going on in my life personal stuff that makes it hard to be creative, but I do plan on finishing up my ice preserves video about the others, my thoughts on the others. I have a couple of new things to add into that. The second part was mostly done and then stuff got in the way, uh, but I have a couple of new things to add. So I'm hoping to get that worked on this week. And then I'm going to get back to my dispossessed or disinherited women series, the Amethyst Empress stuff, starting with Cersei, uh, appropriately enough. And so, yeah, you can find me at my Baal the Bard YouTube channel. I have a website, gnlswriter.com, and that's my Twitter handle is gnlswriter. Well, your last video about the others uh, being created as some sort of guard that got turned into a weapon is really interesting. And it's been it's been tickling up my brain ever since I watched that video, um, because obviously I've, you know, did a whole episode about how the Kingsguard and the others are parallel. And what are the Kingsguard? They're created to protect but then they're used to beat moon maidens like Sansa and do all kinds of other icky bad things. So there's definitely something to that. And I'm, I'm trying to think about that in, in um, sort of uh, comparing that to the idea of the green men, others connection and trying to figure out how that works. Because the sacred order of green men might be the guardian part of that. Like they are guardians. But then if they're turned into others, I don't know. Mm. maybe that's, yeah. yeah, it could be pretty much every parallel we have for the others in canon has that potential to be weaponized somehow, even though it's initially protective. The Faith Militant, the Night's Watch, it happens to the Night Watch too. Like all of them kind of share that, which is what I started picking up on was all of these kind of orders of knights are created to be protective, but at some point or other, someone, usually a specific person, will like weaponize them to hurt people or, you know, try and take over Westeros. There's definitely enough examples of it for for it to be, you know, obviously a thing. So it's something we got to reconcile with our general picture of the others. So, guys, if you haven't seen that, it's the Ball the Bard YouTube channel. Don't forget the apostrophe, Baal the Bard. Yep. And uh, that's where you can find that video. If you haven't seen it, make sure you go see it. Maester Mary up from Under Winterfell, you've been having babies, or one baby at least lately, so you're excused for not writing a ton of essays, but do remind everybody about what you got going on at the Up From Under Winterfell YouTube channel. Yeah, I have um, been on a hiatus from my series of uh, essays and videos about Bravos because children, and then uh, also I have a new real-life job, which is exciting, but has also been kind of sucking the creative life force from me, or at least diverting it to other creative pursuits rather than, you know, the more fun ones. But I have been hoping to get to um, and finish uh, an essay 
that has been very long in the works uh, about the kind of political stuff behind the faceless men. And when Fire and Blood came out, there was a ton of new, really interesting material related to some of the more political facets of the Faceless Men and Bravos that I want to incorporate. So hopefully, um, you know, I'd love to get to that before the show starts, but I, I don't know if that's going to happen. Uh, but I'm, I'm crossing my fingers for, for some time to devote to that soon. Cool. Well, I am eager to see you pick that one up for sure. You were ju- it was just getting good <laughs> with the whole Bravos thing. I mean, because Bravos is one of those ones where it's really hard to tell what is a symbolic parallel and what is actual like literal connections to the old gods and skin changing and stuff like that. And so I'm really eager to see how you push that boundary and and see what you can uh, connect there. So I'm eager to do. And I also uh, just thank you in general for making time to join us on the stream. Uh, I understand it took some sort of strange alchemy of timing baby naps and feeding schedules for like a week ahead of time just so that you could make this happen. So we we all appreciate that. Happy to be here. All right. So I am awash in windows. Melanie Lot 7, what you have uh, going on on your old YouTube channel and plan for the future? All right. So on the YouTube channel, and by the way, I'm really happy to be here. And my cat, John Schnur, would like to say hello to everybody. Um, John Schnur. Tyler Um, just came in too. Oh, (laughs) yes. We will have lots of cats back and forth. I'm really hoping they don't get too bothersome. Um, Yeah, but on my Melanie Lot 7 YouTube channel, there is just the single video. I also have had a lot of life happening to me lately, and it's kind of um, put a damper on my creative process. But I do have my full King Under the Mountain essay recorded, and hopefully I will be able to throw together at least some sort of video and have that up on my channel. And I have a couple of other ideas that I've been really interested in pursuing. And, um, you know, it's just a matter of having the time to do it. Um, one of them involves contrasting Lilith and Eve and, um, using them as a framework to understand some of the women in a song of ice and fire. And then I have another one related to swords that will eventually, um, pop out there it will happen it just might be like three years from now who knows well i am so glad that you brought up the lilith and eve thing because i think that is one of the best places to look for george's inspiration for the idea of two women meaning nissa nissa and knight's queen as separate women or the bifurcation idea yeah or the bifurcation right so i'm we've kicked that around a little bit but i'm i definitely would love to see what you turn up with a closer look at all that so Come on, yeah. let's work. <laughs> Crack the whip. All right. So before I start, what I'd actually like to do is, and I'm sorry I didn't warn you guys ahead of time. I'm a big fan of putting people on the spot. Um, whoever would like to start, I'd like to get a couple minutes on how you all see the archetype of the crone. Um, sort of outside the context of mythical astronomy and stuff, before we get into that specifics, I want to give you ladies who have thought about this a little bit a few minutes to talk about the crone archetype and sort of give a broader context for what that means in the context of the faith of the seven, the triple goddess of Celtic mythology, and sort of the general idea of a crone goddess. And anyone can start first. I have thoughts. Yes, Melanie, I thought you were right. 
All right. So I guess when I look at the crone or when I think about the crone, I think about a woman who is possessed of knowledge, but at the same time, ladies, correct me if I'm wrong, but is the triple goddess crone also related to setting out all of the bad into the world, kind of like opened the Pandora's box and let out all of the bad stuff. Um, So if that's right, um, to me, the crone is the possessor of the knowledge, but also it's a dark knowledge. It's not necessarily a knowledge that's going to be happy, friendly. It could be the truth. I mean, she's she's often associated with doorway, with the doorway, with like mm-hmm. that liminal space, the space between life and death. Also, like the crone being someone who carries a lantern always makes me think of Hecate, who is the Greek goddess of the ways, who is herself like a triple goddess herself and represents that kind of liminal space. And that's like the liminal space, the space between spaces. And so it's that decision point. Like it represents like wisdom and knowledge as well, but also like it's the liminal space is the decision point. It's that point where you decide, am I going to go this way or am I going to go that way or am I going to go this way? And that's what Hecate represents, the goddess of the ways. She's also associated with witchcraft. That sounds a lot like a start back moment, Gretchen. Right, yeah, exactly. And so when I think of the crone, like I, especially with like the crone as being like someone who carries a lantern, is that like someone who represents that turning point, either starting back or not starting back? The question of, am I going to try and undo what the things that I have done or will I continue on on my path and that kind of space of I'm going to call it crisis because it's that like crisis in in Greek meaning the like it's that like significant point of transition between one space and another yeah I'm glad so glad you brought up Hecate that's uh that sort of just clicked in for me that's got to be what the crone's lantern is about I yeah I definitely see a lot of of the same things Gretchen is talking about And in terms of the like Hecate connotations, one of the things that I think a lot about in terms of the crone is I think one of our first introductions to how George is playing with this archetype is actually Miri Mazdur because she is kind of a dark version of the crone. So first, just like Gretchen said, she is this decision point, right? For Danny, she makes the choice to save her, right? And it's meant to be this choice of compassion. And yet, um, sort of in Miri's experience and wisdom, this choice of passion is turned against her, right? Um, So it's an example of the potency of those choices um, and both potency in a in a dark way is I think what we're introduced to with a figure like Miri Mazdur. And and obviously she fits the the crone idea really well because she's magical, a magi, right? So very much this very classic idea of what we would think of as a witch. Um, but also one who is, you know, her power is turned against Danny, and then once again turned against her when Danny decides to burn her. Um, so there's all these really great examples of decision points. Uh, and then the other thing that's interesting, I think, with the Hecate comparison to Crohn's is also the connection to the moon. Um, and you see this in some of the more like pagan kind of in- imagery mm-hmm. that surrounds um, kind of 
the the three-part goddess. And I think that that is one of the things that the crone is also meant to embody is this connection with the night and with, with darkness, um, which I think is just really great. So. Well, it's fantastic. That's all fantastic. That that's exactly what I was looking for. Um, in particular, that that idea of like truth that you may not be ready to handle that forces you to make a decision. That like you, you just think of Maggie the Frog, and the prophecy given to Cersei and Miriam Asdur's words, and you know both um, a Ghost of High Heart is someone that is sought out for her words and prophecy and wisdom. And it's you know actually the I would we're going to get to this, but the the Brotherhood Without Banners actually does a very good job, perhaps the best of anyone, at interpreting prophecy, where we see this scene where basically they go to the ghost of the high heart, and she talks about River Run and, you know, an island in a sea of fire or something like that. And then uh, Thoros goes and looks in his fires and sees a vision, and they put the information together from the ghost of high heart and Thoros's vision and figure out that they shouldn't go to River Run like they were planning. And they actually change their plans and don't go to River Run, which is a brilliant move. Um, so it's very interesting where they're listening to this crone figure and taking wisdom and then changing their decision. Um, and they're, they're one of the few examples of somebody who does it successfully instead of someone like Cersei who fights the prophecy but then sort of makes it come true. So very cool uh san rixian do you have uh i see you piping up about Heca- uh, hecate is it hecate or hecate i think it's hecate okay but I'm, hecate. I'm not sure i'm i'm always wrong when i say it to be honest i just wanted to add um to what gretchen and mary were saying a bit um hecate is like one of the most if not the most important goddess in witchcraft at least like semi-modern witchcraft and she has so many different names and um the one for the guardian, the gate guardian. Give me a second here. I can remember the guide. Um, oh, I can never say it. It's like Hegemonen or something. I'll type it in the chat. I'm really bad at it. But yeah, it's um, that she takes so many different roles that we can see associated uh, with the um, different elements of the triple goddess. We have the maiden mother crone. And just the Corona aspect definitely makes me think of like the Hermit tarot card and the things that are associated with that. And uh, I can't remember the word for whatever that's called. Hermetic mysticism or something. Hermetic. Yeah. Thank you. Hermetic. I don't words good today. I got the dumb. No, no, that's 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 perfect. And KFA's chiming in the Statue of Liberty is another take on the torch bearing goddess. And of course, the Statue of Liberty is primarily an ISIS statue so there's a little bit of crossover there but of course isis is associated with the star sirius and wisdom which is a different kind of light so related set of ideas there and also the hermit carries a lantern for light which can be associated with hecate so i don't know <laughs> no you do know that's perfect you're right yep yep I'm the trying. light for like wisdom and insight and then um someone brought up in the chat what was it? I don't know how to change names, I believe is their handle. Brought up Old Nan, who I think at first glance seems like a fairly benign version of the crone. But when you start looking at the tales that she's telling, they're very much like bitter truth tales. Like they are the like, these are the harsh truths that we need to recognize about the world that we live in. 
those are the stories she tells Bran. Like she tells him stories about the others and about the rat cook and like all of these like horrible, gruesome stories when you think about it. But they're the like harsh truth, harsh realities of the world you live in. If you don't know this, if you don't recognize that this is what has happened and may affect what's happening in the future, then you're screwed. So even old Nan, who seems fairly benign because she's just like a cute little old lady, like knitting in the corner of Winterfell, like telling stories, is still has this like dark truth aspect to her. Um, they just cut; it just comes in the form of folk tales rather than like visions in a flame. I was just going to point out. I love the fact that it's framed as fairy tales, and be- because fairy tales very much have that role in you know in real life history, where it's. Yep. In a way, telling you, yeah, the hard truths. Yep. Does that make anybody else think of the Nords? The oh. Norns? Norns, thank you, yes. Yeah. Obviously, I'm great at all of these <laughs> fantasy games. You did warn us that you were, like, really, really tired. I, I'm sorry, yeah, I'm stumbling <laughs> over my words hard. <laughs> I only know because I read The Wicked and the Divine, so. <laughs> yeah, and but. And their characters. Definitely take that role of, like, giving advice and stuff was the point of that sentence. I think one kind of fun way to look at that concept is to think about it as the lantern is meant to cast light when it's dark, right? So that makes the lantern analogous to the light of the moon rather than the light of the sun. Um, And in the context of Old Nan, that's really interesting because we're thinking about Old Nan shedding light on all these tales that have been buried and hidden in sort of the darkness of the past, um, and I think that's a lot of the imagery that we see around the, the crone figures is they are shrouded in darkness in part because they are revealing truth that is hidden, you know, not truth that's apparent to the uh, everyday eye. And I don't know if y'all can hear my child crying in the background, but it's a nice effect, I think. <laughs> Yeah, just yet, just yet another baby waiting to be turned into a White Walker. No, we we understand what you got going on over there, uh, Miss Night's Queen, Mister Mary. Emma, do you have anything you want to add to that? Um, so I was just going to derail the conversation slightly and um, talk about uh, sort of Macbeth's uh, witches and how they're similarly like truth tellers, but they're also a temptation that lead Macbeth down this really dark path and. Uh, Shakes of Thrones has done a really good essay slash video about that. And as has Joe Edition, they collaborated on that. So you should definitely go and check those out because that, I think, is a really integral um, piece of the puzzle. Yeah, Joe's video and the live stream about that were fantastic. Those are highly recommended. And I'm sure Stephen Stark or one of my other mods will drop the link for that one uh, in case you're not subscribed to the Joe Magician YouTube channel. But of course you should be. And Shakespeare of Thrones has, I know she has a blog. Does she have a YouTube channel as well? Yes, she does. I'm pretty sure she does. Nice. So we'll dig those up and put those in the chat. Yep. One thing we haven't quite mentioned yet is the crone as the psychopomp, which I know is something that has come up in your work, LML. Mm -hmm. But that's something I think is interesting, especially as it is connected with so many of these women that we're going to talk about today is like they straddle that line between life and death and they can either be literally undead like lady stoneheart is literally undead or like the ghost of highheart who is a ghost but like there's there's something about the crone so when i think of the crone as well is not just like old age and with old age comes wisdom but also like death 
but death in both its negative and positive aspects, because you have death as, you know, I mean, everyone is afraid of death, but death is also a transition and that transformation aspect of it. So death can be in some sense, a form of looking at like a new beginning and a new, and a new kind of life or story. So like the crone as that figure who straddles both of those things and it kind of merges into the stranger but i think you get it with the crone as well being that like closer to death than any closer to death than any of the other aspects of the seven other than the stranger i think the crone represents the closest to death without being death itself she's like the pre-stranger she's yeah. like the female stranger in a way yeah it's so the whole everything we've talked about with nissa nissa the weirwoods and doors is kind of where this all comes together the weirwood is a door but it's a door that's opened by nissa nissa and that's why i've been saying nissa nissa's death is what allows azora high to sort of invade the weirwood net she is the gatekeeper she's the doorway she's the one who has the power to open that door uh mm-hmm. and so and then and then furthermore once that door is open she retains power and presence inside the weirwood net. And that's what we're going to try to figure out today is how all that shakes out because there seems to be two sides and maybe Nissa Nissa and Night's Queen are separate or maybe they're overlapping. And so that all comes down to the idea of that weirwood door. That's what we're talking about with the crone opening the door of death and letting the first ravens into the world. I take that for a, a clue about the green zombie Night's Watch, but it also speaks to the, the, the general role of, of that keeper of the door of death which is very much a psychopomp kind of thing. So very cool. And of course the crone, uh, res- you know, it's the triple goddess that resurrects the, the, green, the green man or the horned god in the springtime. So once again, she's playing the gatekeeper role there. All right, so let's go ahead and dive into the scripted portion. I'm going to lock the screen on Sanri while we go here. And ladies, what I was thinking of doing is maybe just like for each section, switching off who's going to read the quotes. Uh, Mary, you volunteered first, so I'll have you do this first section here. Actually, the biggest, but whatever. Whatever. It'll happen one way or the other. If you get tired of reading quotes, you can hand it to somebody else. But everyone here is a wonderful reader, so it is all good. But hey there, friends, patrons, YouTube watchers, and podcast subscribers, fellow Mythheads. My name is LML, and I'm here with this expert panel to shed light on yet another dark corner of A Song of Ice and Fire. We're still following the trail of the old ones, who seem to be the same thing as the green men on the Isle of Faces. We've been doing this by pulling all the usages of the phrase old one, or old ones, and then taking a look at the symbolic context of the scenes in which they occur. Uh, We've worked through most of them, but not all of them, and one of the groups of old ones quotes that I've reserved until now are the ones that apply to women. That's right, female old ones. Green women, namely Nissa Nissa and Night's Queen. Weirwood goddess figures, all of them, and many of them are women that we've already covered in the Weirwood goddess series, like the ghost of High Heart or Circe. So if you haven't listened to the Weirwood goddess series, I'd strongly recommend completing those three episodes before diving into this one. But with that said, the Weirwood goddess is quintessential to understanding what actually took place with the Zora High, Nissa Nissa, and the Weirwoods, so we will do a really quick, very quick summary to make sure it's fresh in everyone's minds. It started with the weirwood stigmata discovery, the phenomena where dying people seem to turn into weirwood trees, with some combination of bloody hands, mouths, eyes, and hair appearing alongside other tree or face carving symbolism. The most vivid examples involve Nissa Nissa figures, especially Catelyn Stark. 
Why are Nissa Nissa people turning into weirwood trees as they die or symbolically die? I was forced to ask myself. The answer seemed obvious yet profound. Nissa Nissa is going into the weirwoods when she dies, and in that way, she's turning into a weirwood tree. We've since found men, usually Azora high figures, experiencing the weirwood stigmata as well, and the message, again, seems to be a symbolic absorption into the weirwood net. However, further research has shown that with Nissa Nissa, this concept of becoming a weirwood tree actually goes further. By looking at a whole bunch of Nissa Nissa figures, we found very consistent and overwhelming child-of-the-forest symbolism. Things like dappled skin, child-woman descriptions, cat-woman ideas such as with Lady Catelyn or Cersei the Lioness, uh, spear-maiden symbolism that is specifically drawn from the Melii of Greek myth, who are essentially dryads tied to the ash tree, and of course Yggdrasil of Norse myth is an ash tree, making these Norse and Greek myths naturally compatible for Martin's mythology mashup writing technique, which all of you are familiar with by now. So we don't know if Nissa Nissa was a full-blooded child of the forest, or maybe a hybrid, or perhaps even a female of this theoretical, taller, green man race. But the message seems to be, broadly speaking, that she was an elf woman, one of the old races who was already tied to the weirwoods and to the forest in general. The picture that has emerged is that Azorahai killed her in a blood magic ritual to essentially force his way into the weirwood net, or you might say, harness its power. He seems to have chosen Nissa Nissa specifically because of her connection to the weirwoods. Now, one final detail. The killing of Nissa Nissa and the dark magic that accompanied it seems to have permanently altered the weirwood net. The way that I prefer to say this is that Nissa Nissa's mind and soul and life essence became what we now think of as the weirwood net, and that this act enabled Azor High and human green seers after him to enter the trees and see through their eyes. Don't forget that Bloodraven describes seeing through the tree as essentially skin-changing the tree. The green seer is invading the consciousness of the tree just as he is when he takes control of an animal or another human. I believe the evidence points to Nissa Nissa's sacrifice being the thing that enabled humans to skin-change the weirwoods at all. And before this, it simply wasn't done in the same way. I suspect that the children and the green men may have had a different way of bonding with the tree, though that's a bit off-topic. The point is that in scene after scene, Nissa Nissa seems to become the green sea herself when she dies. She becomes the weirwood tree, and that is the weirwood goddess theory. When we see Nissa Nissa figures undergo the stigmata, like Catelyn's death scene at the Red Wedding, they are depicting the moment of Nissa Nissa's transformation. For example, Catelyn, following her bloody death, is thrown into the green fork of the Trident River, which gives us the idea of a green river, as well as a river named after the weapon of a sea god, the trident. And this depicts Nissa Nissa's spirit entering the green sea of the weirwood net. And then the next time we see Lady Cat, she appears to us as the weirwood goddess figure inside the godswood at a place called Old Stones, which, old ones, old stones, yes. Maester Mary. The outlaws parted as she came forward, saying no word. When she lowered her hood, something tightened inside Merritt's chest, and for a moment he could not breathe. No, no, I saw her die. She was dead for a day and a night before they stripped her naked body and threw her in the river. Raymond opened her throat from ear to ear. She was dead. Her cloak and collar hid the gash his brother's blade had made. 
but her face was even worse than he remembered. The flesh had gone pudding soft in the water and turned the color of curdled milk. Half her hair was gone, and the rest had turned as white and brittle as a crone's. Beneath her ravaged scalp, her face was shredded skin and black blood where she had raked herself with nails. But her eyes were the most terrible thing. Her eyes saw him, and they hated. She don't speak, said the big man in the yellow cloak. You bloody bastards cut her throat too deep for that. But she remembers. So she remembers. The North remembers. The trees remember. Nissa Nissa's spirit remembers. Like Nissa Nissa, Catelyn was the victim of foul murder, and her spirit has reason to seek vengeance and many wrongs to right. The spirit-like nature of Lady Stoneheart is emphasized by her wispy white hair and pale skin, as well as the language about the phrase stripping her body naked before throwing it in the river. That line implies that Nissa Nissa has been stripped of her skin, meaning she's now a spirit or a ghost. Indeed, the only part of you that can enter the Weirwood is your spirit, of course, so that all checks out. We can also see signs of the stigmata here, a bloody carved face, a red smile, eyes that hate. And just to go back a minute, like I said, she's in the godswood at Old Stones. And I'll also point out that her flesh being sort of ribbons, it really starts to sound like a creased, you know, the bark of a tree where you get those long fissures and cracks. And I think Martin has used that sort of symbolism in a couple places. So anyways, uh, I think that Lady Catelyn, especially with her, the hateful emphasis on her weirwood goddess, compares very well to the weirwood in the godswood at Harrenhal that Arya sees. Shoving her sword through her belt, she slipped down branch to branch until she was back on the ground. The light of the moon painted the limbs of the weirwood silvery white as she made her way toward it. But the five-pointed red leaves turned black by night. Arya stared at the face carved into its trunk. It was a terrible face, its mouth twisted, its eyes flaring and full of hate. Is that what a god looked like? Could gods be hurt, the same as people? I should pray, she thought suddenly. The blood-red leaves and sap have even turned black here, just as Catelyn's red tears and facial wounds have turned black by the time she became Lady Stoneheart. Even that name, Stone Heart, like a heart tree. And of course, dead weirwoods even turn to stone after thousands of years. And if you like my tinfoil about weirwoods sort of growing over the meteors or containing the meteor poison, or which uh, sort of bounces off that scene where John dreams about Bran as a weirwood tree that grows from a stone, there might be other implications of a weirwood tree having a stone heart. But that's a little off topic. So... Lady Stoneheart's second appearance is even more obvious as some sort of weirwood goddess, as it comes inside a cave full of weirwood roots that the Brotherhood Without Banners has made their home. Lady Stoneheart lowered her hood and unwound the gray wool scarf from her face. Her hair was dry and brittle, white as bone. Her brow was mottled green and gray, spotted with the brown blooms of decay. The flesh of her face clung in ragged strips from her eyes down to her jaw. Some of the rips were crusted with dried blood, but others gaped open to reveal the skull beneath. Her face, Brienne thought, 
Her face was so strong and handsome, her skin so smooth and soft. Lady Caitlin? Tears filled her eyes. They said, they said you were dead. She is, said Thoros of Myrrh. The phrase slashed her throat from ear to ear. When we found her by the river, she was three days dead. Harwin begged me to give her the kiss of life, but it had been too long. I would not do it. So Lord Beric put his lips to hers instead, and the flame of life passed from him to her. And she rose. May the Lord of Light protect us. She rose. So there's the signature gray and green symbolism that seems to relate to the weirwoodnet and the cycle of life and death. And the word modeled is in the same group with dappled, spotted, etc. Most importantly, we observe that Stoneheart was raised from the dead by Beric, passing his flame of life to Catelyn with the same fiery kiss of R'hllor that Thoros used to raise Beric from the dead. Yes, not the Lord's kiss. It's the fiery kiss of R'hllor. We've, we've got those straight now, right? So uh, this spells out Catelyn as what George would call a fire white, right? She's running on R'hllor power. So that's exactly what George called Beric, who's similarly raised by the fiery kiss. Um, fiery lord's kiss so this idea is enhanced in this same brienne chapter when it says the woman in gray hissed through her fingers her eyes were two red pits burning in the shadows it's hard to say if her eyes are literally red and fiery like melisandre's appear to be or you know kind of like the opposite of a cold white with blue star eyes or perhaps this is just the firelight reflecting in her eyes which are red and like you know bloody and wounded and stuff and that this is simply descriptive language about them burning. But together with her being animated by fire magic, the implication, at least, seems to be clear. She reminds us a lot of the ghost of Highheart, who has bone-white hair and burning red eyes, just like Lady Stoneheart, and who, like Stoneheart, is a ghost haunting weirwoods in the Riverlands. So, long story short, this all seems to line up with my perception of the weirwood goddess figure as the ghost of Nissa Nissa, which I see aligned with fire, the green seers, the night's watch, green zombies, etc. If the weirwood net has a partition, as we are coming to think it may, the weirwood goddess would live on the non-white walker side, which would be the non-frozen side, meaning the warm or even the hot side. So additionally, Beric's brotherhood without banners has always seemed like an analog for the night's watch to me because they defend the people against the marauding Lannisters, and Beric in particular compares well to Blood Raven, Jon Snow, and other last hero figures. Beric serves as the symbolic template for the idea of the fiery undead Night's Watchmen, of course, with the fiery Scarecrow Sentinels from Jon's Azor Hydream, basically comparing to Beric, the Scarecrow Knight, who's dressed in black and animated by fire. The green zombies have always seemed to be resurrected by the Weirwoods, by the Weirwood Goddess, in other words, just as in classic mythology, it's always the triple goddess, moon goddess figure who resurrects the horned lord or the green man. Thus, when the Brotherhood passes from Beric to Lady Stoneheart, along with the flame of life, it's always read to me as more green zombie Night's Watch stuff, with the living ghost of Catelyn showing us how the ghost of Nissa Nissa powers, or you might say orchestrates the Night's Watch from inside the Weirwoodnet. So you picture... You know, the original Night's Watchmen saying their oaths to the Weirwood Tree, they're basically swearing their oaths to the Weirwood Goddess. So that's why she's kind of like in charge. Now, unfortunately, 
It's not so clear-cut, as I alluded to earlier. Catelyn also has some potential connections, and that's uh, Lady Stoneheart Catelyn, of course, also has some potential connections to the corpse queen of the Night's King legend, who is the signature Ice Queen, Ice Moon woman figure. Lady Stoneheart is a corpse, for one thing, and her skin is as pale as milk, which is almost as good as moon pale. Uh, Her hair is bone white, and bone white and milk white are both phrases used to describe the others. Most conspicuously, there are these lines from that same Brienne A Feast for Crows chapter that we've been quoting from. Lady Catelyn's fingers dug deep into her throat, and the words came rattling out, choked and broken, as a stream as cold as ice. The Northmen said, She says that you must choose. Take the sword and slay the Kingslayer, or be hanged for a betrayer. The sword or the noose, she says. Choose, she says. Choose. Now, this is obviously figurative language, uh, but that's just the sort of place that we look for symbolic associations. And though she might be a fire white, Lady Stoneheart's speech comes out choked and broken as an icy stream. Even her interpreter, her mouthpiece, or her speaker, if you will, is named as a Northman, which could fit. And later, it says his accent was frosted, or his voice was frosted with the accent of the North. So it's a theme that's going on, this cold, northern, icy voice that's happening here. There is also a pretty nice Others double entendre here. And although I don't like to put too much stock in these, I mostly like to use them to confirm rather than to establish ideas. This one is worth taking a look at um, because the description of the cave where when uh, Brienne enters at the beginning of the scene is just really crazy. So, Mary, go ahead and read this one. A fire pit had been dug into the center of the floor, and the air was blue with smoke. Men clustered near the flames, warming themselves against the chill of the cave. Others stood along the walls or sat cross-legged on straw pallets. So this one really stands out because of the blue air and the capitalized others at the beginning of the sentence. You'll notice that the quote-unquote others are even standing along the walls, away from the fire. You know, it's interesting. The Brotherhood also, I think it's worth noting, has taken a much darker turn under the new leadership, which is reflected in these lines. My lady, Thoros said, I do not doubt that kindness and mercy and forgiveness can still be found somewhere in these seven kingdoms, but do not look for them here. This is a cave, not a temple. When men must live like rats in the dark beneath the earth, they soon run out of pity, as they do of milk and honey. Injustice? Can that be found in caves? Justice, Thoros smiled wanly. I remember justice. It had a pleasant taste. Justice was what we were about when Beric led us, or so we told ourselves. We were king's men, knights, and heroes. But some nights are dark and full of terror, my lady. War make monsters of us all. Now, this could certainly apply to the green zombies that I've hypothesized, especially since Cold Hands is labeled a monster repeatedly by Bran. However, it's also possible that George is drawing a distinction between the two groups of Brotherhood Without Banners, or at least the before and the after. So now I've actually, or I guess you might say Barrack's group and Stoneheart's group, And it's also interesting that by the time we see Stoneheart in charge of the group, several people have left, um, including Ned Dane. So that might be another something else. And also uh, Lem Lemoncloak 
whose symbolism is the yellow cloak, is now wearing the hound's helm. So that's kind of like a bright sun turning to a dark sun uh, symbol there. So in any case, I actually have a good explanation for why Stoneheart's voice is icy in this quote, which can still line up with my original interpretation that she is not a Night's Queen figure, but instead a Nissanus of fiery weirwood goddess. And it has to do with the sword Oathkeeper and the concept of frozen fire. So recall the similarities between the two favorite weapons of the Night's Watch to fight the others. Dragonglass, which is called frozen fire and kind of looks like black ice, and Valerian steel, which is also black or dark gray to black, And in the case of Ned's sword, ice is even black ice in a less literal sense, because it's black and called ice, of course. Like dragonglass, valerian steel was formed in a molten state, and then once cooled and hardened, it still seems to possess the power of fire magic. This black ice frozen fire symbol seems to reflect a synthesis of ice and fire, but one which still plays on team fire. So think about it like this. Obsidian and valerian steel are like fire frozen in place. And they are a perfect opposite of the others who are animated by an icy power that burns like the cold. So the Night's Watch uses the frozen fire weapons to defeat the burning ice others. If Lady Stoneheart is the weirwood goddess as she appears to be, and the Brotherhood her Night's Watch analogs, then perhaps her icy stream of choked words is like that. It's like some sort of frozen fire symbol. And in particular, I would point to the presence of Oathkeeper in this scene, which is one half of Ned's black ice sword. So, okay, Mary, let's go ahead and... This section is actually like half of the essay, so let's go ahead and switch. So, Melanie, give us uh, this next quote about the outlaws in the cave here. You bet. Another of the outlaws stepped forward, a younger man in a greasy sheepskin jerkin. In his hand was Oathkeeper. This says it is. His voice was frosted with the accents of the North. He slid the sword from its scabbard and placed it in front of Lady Stoneheart. In the light from the fire pit, the red and black ripples in the blade almost seemed to move. But the woman in gray had eyes only for the pommel, a golden lion's head with ruby eyes that shone like two red stars. I want you to think about the concept of a sword voice here, which is part of what Ravenous Reader calls the killing word and mods if you could drop the killing word essay link which i believe is on unchained song of ice and fire unchained wordpress yes in fact that is definitely where it is so think about the sword voice the killing word Oathkeeper's other half is widow's wail and that's a sword named after a woman's cry and even Oathkeeper is a sword named after words a spoken oath right so these are both two swords named after words a voice a cry They're both sword words. And like Oathkeeper, Widow's Whale is really ice. I think, you know, it's one half of Ned's ice. So we, these swords are like an icy voice. Now, Catelyn Stoneheart is a widow with a voice like a stream of icy water. And Widow's Whale is made of ice and has waves of night and blood, meaning water. So icy water, black and red icy water, etc., This is also a lot like the John scene at the wall, which I love to quote from. John Snow turned away. The last light of the sun had begun to fade. He watched the cracks along the wall go from red to gray to black, from streaks of fire to rivers of black ice. 
So there we go. We've got the red fire and the black ice. It's the same combination that we see in Stoneheart's cave with Oathkeeper, you know, it's, which is made of Ned's black ice sword, but has the red garnets in the eyes of the lion's head pommel, which shine like red stars. So then in John's Azor High Dream, we have black ice armor and a Valerian steel sword burning red in his fist. I've long pointed to the black ice red fire combo as a light bringer thing that shows a balancing of ice and fire. So finding that combo on Oathkeeper and Widow's Whale, well, I've always pointed to that as evidence that Martin has been using Ned's ice as a Lightbringer symbol. And of course, Arya compares the Red Comet to Ned's ice covered with Ned's blood, so that all fits. So the Weirwoods, think about this, the Weirwoods are also a symbol or incarnation of Lightbringer. They represent the power and the fire of the gods, like Lightbringer the sword. And just as the Lightbringer legend has Nissanissa's soul and strength going into the sword... We have found that Nissanissa's soul actually goes into the Weirwoods. So either way, Nissanissa is going into Lightbringer. Lightbringer is a sword that burns without being consumed, and the Weirwoods are depicted in symbolic terms as a tree which burns but is not consumed, just like Moses's burning bush. So with this in mind, consider the parallels between Catelyn, the Weirwood goddess, and the swords which used to be ice which symbolized Lightbringer. Both Stoneheart and the swords have burning red eyes. The line even suggests a comparison when it says, the woman in gray had eyes only for the pommel, a golden lion's head with ruby eyes that shone like two red stars. Stoneheart is even a cat with burning red eyes, just like the lion's head pommel. And again, she's a widow, just like Widow's Whale. And her widow's voice is like an icy stream, just like Widow's Whale is made of Ned's black ice which appears to have waves in its steel. And somebody points out in the chat that basically a widow is another word for a crone anyways, in many instances. Widow's wail is literally a crone's voice. And Lady Stoneheart's actual voice is obviously a crone's voice and a widow's voice. So pretty tight comparison here. Big fan of this. Uh, I'm actually going to pause here and let anybody jump in to comments about how cool the scene is or if there's any other uh, related information that we should be including here nope we just like it there actually was something else in the chat that somebody piped up um brienne asks if justice can be found in the cave but of course we've caught on to the pun about just ice meaning ned's ice which he uses to bring justice with um so can justice be found in the cave well i don't know but ice can be found in the cave because oath keepers in there so very cool very cool that to me that also points more again once again to the bifurcation theme because you have um uh I believe it was Mijikan pointed out that like justice can be you can think of justice as the combination of duty and passion, what you what is necessary and you know, also like doing what is right, like what you feel is right in any given situation, and that can line up potentially with Oathkeeper and widow's whale at least to me like you can combine those two things so just as justice is split into duty and passion and you can't like one without the other is going to be imbalanced in one direction or another so ice being split into Oathkeeper and widow's whale could be a representation of that and then what do we find in the cave we only find one piece of it you only find mm. duty you have that like rod you have duty whether or not, whatever it means that you only have Oathkeeper there may or may not be line up, but the idea that you have one without the other leading to a kind of like 
imbalance because, you know, Ned's death and the splitting of ice happened roughly around the same time. And that's roughly around the time that the Brotherhood Without Banners is formed. But once the Brotherhood Without Banners, like, loses, like, a piece of itself, then it becomes imbalanced in the same way that, like, losing, splitting ice creates an imbalance. So splitting justice does too. That's really good. And it's just, it's so awesome where it's like, well, can justice be found here? And he's like, oh, I remember justice. I remember when we were doing that. I remember ice, but now we've only got half of that. And it's just the vengeful half, just the widow's wail. Um, uh, So that's cool. Very, very, I guess, well, Catelyn is the widow's wail and and the the sword at Brienne would be the oath keeper. But you have, yeah, and you have them looking at each other. You have, but they're not united. They're not a united front anymore because because Brienne and Cat used to be a united oh, front. They totally and now they're in opposition. Yeah, now they're in opposition, and you have like Cat looking at Oathkeeper and Oathkeeper looking back at her, and then Brienne looking at Cat and and like Lady Stoneheart looking back at her. So you have like the pieces are there. They're just no longer united. They're in opposition to each other now. That's fucking awesome. Love it. Love it. I'm so glad we did the panel like this. <laughs> This is and guys, this is exactly why we did it this way. I mean, this is exactly why because I had a feeling I've only I know when I've got like my brain wrapped around something, and I know when I'm only like pulling at the threads and still trying to figure out how it works. So I never try to oversell anything. If I don't know, I will say it or I'll leave it to the end, or we'll do what we did today and just turn it over to the panel. So very nice, Emma. You look like you wanted to add to that. You, I saw you, no, you're shaking your head. Maybe you're just I, excited. I was only it. going to be. Uh speaking my amazement and like oh my god that's amazing and i love it <laughs> that was that was out of the hitting it out of the park there so what can we so let's think about that so brienne is brienne the blue she's obviously more of going to be on the icy side of things and lady catelyn alive is very clearly on the fire side of things so that's that's maybe we should think about that as a bifurcation thing too and what's interesting is that after brienne is hung she screams a word, which is sword. And of course, that's more sword words. And that begins to maybe get them on the same page where now she's going to try to keep her oath. But of course, we don't know what's really going to happen in that cave once Brienne leads Jamie down there. I don't think she's just going to serve Jamie up and then do nothing, right? So that they could actually fight. You could see Brienne kill Lady Stoneheart, possibly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, mean, I mean, and that brings to mind, isn't it, isn't it Maester Eamon who says that love love is the death of duty. And that's another one of those like so. passion versus duty. Like, but the idea being that like only one can win. But I think that, that to me, the idea is that like you have to find a way to honor both because when they're in opposition to each other is when you have, when one is out of balance and they're in opposition to each other, that's when you end up with things like Lady Stoneheart, who is so focused on like passion and vengeance or even as Melanie Lot7 and I have talked about with Arya and Sansa because Arya is much more like that revenge driven character and Sansa seems to represent the other side of that yeah or forgiveness but she also seems to like or at least could potentially be that character like Littlefinger could be trying to like manipulate her into becoming the kind of character who just does what is necessary what she believes is necessary for herself out of duty or loyalty to him rather than, you know, combining that. I'm not saying she is that now, but I think Littlefinger would want her to be. I agree. And do we want to throw in the concept of mercy as maybe a way to join um, if Brienne does get the sword and she does kill Lady Stoneheart? 
do we want to throw in mercy as a way to maybe join yeah. those two things together? Well, just, justice and mercy are always, mm-hmm. you know, companions. Or, or if they're not, it's, it becomes a problem, like, like Gretchen was just saying. Right. And this also has to tie into the, the Tully words, family, duty, honor, and the ways that we see Catelyn sort of caught in the conflict between those things. And even Hoster Tully, the things he does to his children, Lysa in particular, in the name of family and honor, or duty, rather. It's kind of dishonorable. Um, and you get you think about Tywin with the overemphasis on one thing without the other. So, yeah, very good. Oh, I'm, I have a thought based on what I just caught, which is we can imagine justice as the balance, as the middle point between vengeance and mercy, um, which is really interesting with respect to Sansa and Arya. And then also like trying to negotiate that through um, their mother, right? So, you know, perhaps we, through Lady Stoneheart, we're seeing, you know, the, an example of justice, of vengeance and mercy being out of balance, right? And so that puts all of them somewhere on the same continuum between vengeance and mercy, seeking whatever it is, the, the middle point is for justice. Very cool. And and what's fun is how these themes carry over from uh, Catelyn's arc to those of her children. Obviously, with Arya being caught up in the mercy-justice, um, you know, dichotomy. And uh, I think Elaine Stone is also going to be in that position as she turns back into Sansa and gains power. So this is really interesting. Um, there's a lot of, lot of themes going on here. It's really cool how... Our conversation sometimes, you know, there's like moon meteors on one end of the the spectrum and then there's like the hardened conflict stuff and we sort of just range in between. But very good. So going back to the quote where Oathkeeper is given to Lady Stoneheart, listen to this part again. It says, this says it is. His voice was frosted with the accents of the north. He slid the sword from its scabbard and placed it in front of Lady Stoneheart. So right in between lines about the sword formerly known as ice, we see that the sword bearer's voice is frosted with the north. So we've got this idea of a cold voice. And it looks like a case of Martin emphasizing a theme in multiple ways, coming only moments before Stoneheart's icy voice quote, as it does. So Stoneheart's icy words were a command to take Oathkeeper and kill Jamie. And these words are even described as a sword. The thing that had been Catelyn Stark took hold of her throat again, fingers pinching at the ghastly long slash in her neck and choked out more sounds. Words are wind, she says, the Northman told Brienne. She said that you must prove your faith. How? asked Brienne. With your sword, Oathkeeper, you call it. Then keep your oath to her, milady says. What does she want of me? She wants her son alive or the men who killed him dead, said the big man. She wants to feed the crows like they did at the Red Wedding. Frey's and Bolton's eye. We'll give her those, as many as she likes. All she asks from you is Jamie Lannister. Jamie. The name was a knife twisting in her belly. So Stoneheart, the fire-whited, weirwood goddess that she is, has a sword voice like ice. She speaks the name that stabs Brienne like a knife, an icy knife, to be sure. But again, Widow's Whale and Oathkeeper and Ice before them were icy knives, and Stoneheart has one of those two in this same scene, which is Oathkeeper. 
Just in case you aren't convinced, the chapter ends with Brienne being forced to choose the sword or the noose, Brienne refusing and being hung, and then as she's hung, the chapter ends with her screaming a word, which George Martin has confirmed was sword. So to put it simply, words and voices, as knives and swords, are everywhere in this chapter. Oathkeeper is named after words and oath, and Widow's Wail is named after a scream. And again, the chapter ends with the line, she screamed a word, which was sword, and it constituted a command to keep an oath to Catelyn, an oath to use a sword, named after an oath that was screamed. Okay, you get it. You guys get it. So that all lines up with Catelyn as the weird goddess, although that blue, smoky air does still kind of trouble me. A fire that turns the air blue could be a way of suggesting blue fire, even though it's the smoke turning the air blue in actuality. Here's the broader point, though. We do know that plenty of Nissa Nissa figures do turn into Ice Queen figures. Sansa at the Eyrie absolutely does that. Uh, Cersei imprisoned in the Sept of Baelor. Or the dying Ygritte, whose death scene we quoted last episode. He found a grit sprawled across a patch of old snow beneath the Lord Commander's tower, with an arrow between her breasts. The ice crystals had settled over her face, and in the moonlight, it looked as though she wore a glittering silver mask. So Ygritte is kissed by fire, of course, while she lives, and she plays out Nissa Nissa scenarios with John a few times before her death here. But her death, well, that's the biggest Nissa Nissa moment of them all. She's taken an arrow to the breast, very comparable to Azor, a high stabbing Nissa Nissa in her bared breast. Now, it's not John's arrow, but of course, in his dreams, it always is. And he thinks to, you know, he, that's what he thinks to himself. And of course, there's the dream, the Azor high dream, also has him stabbing Ygritte with a flaming sword. And yet, here's Ygritte putting on an icy moon silver mask as she dies. The weirwood faces are very like masks for the green seers trapped inside them, but this mask is made of ice. It's like Nissa Nissa being trapped inside the icy pond, inside the frozen side of the weirwood sea. Again, it's very comparable to Sansa being reborn with a new identity when she goes to the icy veil, or like Cersei shaving her golden hair as she's imprisoned in the white marble sept, which symbolizes her losing her fire. Now, this could be explained some version of the idea that the corpse queen, night's queen, is undead Nissa Nissa. And this does seem to be true in some sense. But then we also have this weirdwood goddess figure who seems to be fiery, the ghost of Highheart for sure, and probably Lady Stoneheart, although we're still trying to figure that out. This has led to ideas about the bifurcation of Nissa Nissa, which is something that we'll talk about today. And we'll also discuss the possibility that Nissa Nissa's spirit might be temporarily trapped on the icy side of the net, or was. For example, Sansa will eventually leave the veil and have her red hair grow back. Cersei escapes the sept, grows her hair back, and seems to have wild, fiery plans in her future. And even Ygritte temporarily appears to have returned to fiery life when Jon sees Melisandre as Ygritte in the moonlight, just for a moment. So... That's kind of a new one that I wanted to throw out there, but that is something that occurred to me, ladies, is that it's possible Nissa Nissa, at some point, or some part of her, gets trapped in the icy side, and maybe that's the way that she's connected to what we think of as Night's Queen. And there are things like rescue missions that happen 
Um, and even King Ares being trapped in Duskendale, I think King Ares is kind of a Nissa Nissa figure at times. He grows his long hair and nails like a woman. It's even he's even compared to that. And when he dies, uh, Jamie basically Nissa Nissa's him with his red sword. So I think that I think that Nissa Nissa being trapped in somewhere might be a thing. Um, what any, what are the thoughts on that? I love that idea. Um... I mean, it also makes me think of the times that we've kicked around the idea about the, the Night's Queen being stuck in the crypts of Winterfell, because that's a cold location, if anything is. Um, uh, yeah, and, I think yeah. it's, there's definitely evidence to back it up, if you look, I think. Hmm. I, I love the, I mean, I love that idea, um, and I, I tend to kind of agree with this idea that a lot of the really powerful foreshadowing that George does happens very early in Game of Thrones when he considered that the series was going to be very short. Um, and so this fits really nicely with Lyanna being trapped in the crypts as a sort of quintessential Night's mm-hmm. Queen figure. Um, and this line that you know Robert has about how she should be in the sunlight, but instead she's trapped inside the crypts of Winterfell. Um, so I think um, I think that idea is one that is really thematically strong throughout uh, all of the books. Right, it gets into the whole um, woman in the tower thing. Val is trapped in the tower at, at, at uh, Castle Black, if you will, with a giant as a guardian. Oh, KFA also, just real quick to go back to the conversation before I forget, KFA points out that Nissa Nissa is a name that can literally be split in half because it's repeated. So that's pretty cool. And we've got all the, uh, that mirror mirroring ideas too, but... To be, to be super nerdy and linguistic, reduplication, which is what that's called when you have um, something repeated like that, is, a very, is often used in older languages to talk about multiplicity of something. So you might not say like the word you instead of adding an S like we do to to indicate like multiples, many of in English, like water to waters or, you know, those kinds of things, you would just repeat it. So like Nissa Nissa could be a way of in many languages, they might actually use something like Nissa Nissa to say multiple, multiple Nissas. They would just repeat the same word and it would mean there were many of them. And that and that just sounds like an archetype that multiple people fit into kind of. So that's awesome. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, can I just hop on and talk about blue, the blue smoke potentially? Yeah, this actually is the end of this section. So this is, we can, we can talk, comment on anything that we just read in the whole last section. So yeah, fire away, Emma. So there's an idiom, um, and I'm not sure if it's just a British one, but um, it's uh, when you swear, you turn the air blue. So I was wondering if potentially the blue smoke is a relation to like cursing and witchcraft in that way, potentially. That kind of makes sense, yeah. Gretchen is taunting us all with her half pretzel, half cracker. Well, they flips, right? Is that what those are called? Those are the bomb. No, don't unmute yourself. You're chewing. That's fine. Don't, no, there you go. <laughs> Flip sides. Hey, isn't that kind of like thematically appropriate? What's it's even, bi- they're bifurcated. And you know yeah. what's even more appropriate? They're heart shaped. Oh, half a heartbeat. That's, How? Way, that- <clears throat> she's so awesome. She even has on point food. <laughs> I didn't do it on purpose. I actually, thought that I 
They're not labeled as being like heart shaped. I just bought them because they were on the shelf and I got home and I was like, oh my God, this is perfect. I'm Lady Stoneheart eating like hearts. I'm literally eating hearts. <laughs> you, you, your game is just like, it's on 11 right now. You've, you've turned your game up to 11. It's one more. That's thematic crackers. The way, I, I do think the half a heartbeat thing is uh, it's about a lot of things it's about the heart and conflict kind of um but there is there is i think that this is part of it too the whole bifurcation uh heart of uh there's just because stone heart i mean there's so much heart action going on with these characters and the the heart of a fallen star is the is the word he likes for the meteor so this is like the torn out heart of one of the moon maidens yeah I think something that's interesting about that is this, you know, one of the ideas that we've been throwing around is the idea of, um, and, and I think Gretchen had brought this up earlier. It's, it's the idea that they were calling them the thing that had been Kate, Catelyn Stark and the thing that had been Thistle. And a lot of these characters have a lot of, you know, implication that what they've lost in being resurrected is their humanity. And so the idea that she's a stone heart or you know, half a heart or half a heartbeat all ties back into this more broad idea that um, it's, you lose your heart when you lose your humanity. So when you're resurrected and you do not come back the same as you were before, what you've lost is what makes you human. Jumping in on that thought, Mary, there's also, and, and also what you were saying earlier, Gretchen, about um, a lot of the foreshadowing happening in Game of Thrones. Um, there's a really great quote and of course, like I don't have it in front of me, but there's a great quote about Kat at one point in time. Um, I think it has to do when Bran is, when, when he's paralyzed and she's, you know, grieving for him, but it talks about her heart being empty. And it, it made me think about how a fiery heart could be turned into a cold heart and that bifurcation idea. Well, that's, that's interesting too. When you say fiery heart, obviously the first thing that I comes to mind is a Stannis' new sigil. Mm-hmm. And so we think about how Melisandre has invented Azor High, has invented this hero figure as someone who is then necessarily unhuman because, a, you know, a human can't have a fiery heart. Um, and so I think, you know, this, this goes back into our, our questioning of the, of, the entire, of the entire narrative and who should be a hero and who shouldn't be a hero. Um, but I, I think it's it's also it's very interesting in the context of of that sigil. Well, and the opposite of a fiery heart is a frozen heart, which I mean, people talk about being heartless or like having a heart of stone or like having a frozen heart is being almost interchangeable. Like they all mean like that lack of essential like compassion or mercy or humanity that you're talking about. And so, like even Lady Stoneheart is even though she's driven by vengeance, like she's also like her name implies that she's somehow been like petrified and like turned to stone, which as we see in, in a song of ice and fire, like turning to stone and turning to ice are almost are parallel symbols. A lot of the time that you can be turned. I mean, they they essentially turning you to stone, like freezes you just in a different way. You you're, you're un- incapable of change. You're like stagnated. Um, and so even the name Stoneheart, when I think Stoneheart, sometimes I think of like that, like she's also in a sense frozen, like that, that like she's been turned to stone. She's been frozen. She's been like solidified into something that like is incapable of change and also lacks emotions and 
feeling, which is funny because she's driven by fire. Like she's like a fire-driven, passion-driven, revenge-driven, but also frozen. That's why I was comparing stone. her to frozen fire kind of. And right. the sword itself, black ice is, is in that category of symbols. Go ahead, Melanie. I was going to say, I pulled up that quote finally. Sorry, it took a little bit of reading. Um, it's And this is from... Catelyn six in the Game of Thrones. Um, and I was wrong. It wasn't in front of Bran. Sorry. It all gets blended together. But anyway, Catelyn said sometimes, she, blah, blah, blah. Sometimes she felt as though her heart had turned to stone. Six brave men had died to bring her this far. And she could not even find it in her to weep for them. Even their names were fading. And that's kind of, to me, indicative of that like frozen heart idea that you guys were just talking about. You know, as the way that... Um a way the way that this got framed has me thinking back to our earlier discussion about the the poles of mercy and vengeance and then in the middle you have justice but perhaps in the middle there's also humanity right and the when george talks about the human heart in conflict being the only thing that's worth writing about right it is conflict that makes us human like the the uh, conflict between these two poles of what is the right choice, what is just, what is vengeance, right? Um, and I think that when we remove the humanity from someone, perhaps we're pushing them too far to one pole. If you become all fire or if you become all ice, then you're inhuman because there's no conflict anymore. There's, there's no way to negotiate between those two poles. And I think that that's really in line with a lot of what George's mission in A Song of Ice and Fire is, which is to get us to see shades of gray and to recognize that in going too far to one extreme, we you know destroy what makes us human. And that is exactly what Lady Stoneheart is meant to embody. Oh, I absolutely love that. It's all about, yeah, balance and figuring, like, it's social commentary. Absolutely. Very well said. I'm not even going to throw anything else at that. That's really good. Yes, I'm just over here nodding my head along with most of the chat. That was all very good. And uh, I asked everybody uh, a second ago how they're liking the format. It seems like everybody's liking it. I think this is going great. So I'm having lots of fun. Thank you, everyone. Uh, this is, I mean, this it's fun, right? Because the heart in conflict, he talks about it so damn much. He uses the half a heartbeat phrase comedically often i mean so often you know so it must be important and he's even i think he's even been asked you know why do you use certain phrases over and over and he's like well for a damn reason like there's a reason (laughs) so this is fun uh getting into this and somebody pointed out that a heart in conflict essentially is a bifurcated heart by definition so it's fun And that's why I've said that sometimes um, when we see characters who are described as siblings who are fighting each other, that it's another way of talking about that. Like the twins, Eric and Arik Cargill, who fight during the Dance of Dragons, like they're, yes, they're siblings who are fighting, but because they're twins, like you can use twins fighting or even siblings fighting each other as as a way of like embodying the, the heart and conflict with itself because you have two people who are like the same person we know they're not the same but like you know they're they're twins and they're fighting each other is just a way of like embodying the heart in conflict with itself in the form of two people so i think sometimes when you get siblings or even relatives fighting with each other that's another way of martin kind of 
it's an analogy for that heart in conflict with itself is you have two, especially if they're different people, like different personalities. Well, that's one of the things that makes it so maddening to try to figure out if Nissa Nissa and Night's Queen are two women or one, because we see an archetype sometimes manifest as one person with a contrast or two people that oppose each other. It's, it's, uh, we'll never know the answer. Sorry, Bronze Stairs. He's dying somewhere. Yeah. Mary, did you have, did you have something you were going to add? Well, I, uh, just to go back to the very beginning of our discussion, we see this same idea with the tripart goddess, is that it is a it is a conflict or embodiment of multiple people under one kind of unifying symbol. And um, this goes back to our discussion of Sansa and Arya as two parts of a whole. And then again, as Caitlin, uh, or, and how she relates to the, you know, the creator of those two parts of the same whole. And this is very much... You know, it's embodied in the the idea of a of the three part goddess because it's it's the relationship of one generation to another um, that that creates these differences that are only that only make sense in context of each other. And so, I think I think Ari and Sensa are very much deliberately created by George to be an example of that contrast. And although I don't love everything that the show has done with their two characters, I'm hoping that in season eight, we're going to see a reconciliation between the two of them that we will also see in the books, which is this, the tomboy and the classic kind of female character recognizing and appreciating what they have to offer each other which yeah. I think very much is going to kind of embody that same idea. Yeah, it might be clunky at times, but that is what they're trying to do, obviously. So, yeah, let's hope it goes well in season eight. We've all got our fingers crossed. Um, so a couple things from the chat I want to pick out. Let's see. Tony3483 notices, uh, asked, did you talk about Jamie's weirwood dream, the one where he and Brienne wield flaming swords in a cave, and how that might connect to the coming Lady Stoneheart cave showdown? You know, it's never occurred to me, uh, but it almost seems really damn obvious. So we were just talking about what's actually going to happen in that cave, right? Last thing we know, Jamie has been led down to Lady Stoneheart's cave by Brienne. Uh, we don't know what's happened. We do know that it's been a few weeks since anybody's heard from Jamie. So who knows what's going on? But there's obviously going to be... We've Here are the elements in the cave. Let's put it this way. We've got Stoneheart, Jamie... Brienne, Oathkeeper, potential fire magic or weirwood magic, and a lot of tension. Uh, so, and Lem Lem and Cloak in the Hound's Helm, just to make sure that shit gets stirred up. So one of the things that could happen is you could see, obviously, like I said, Stoneheart could get killed by Jamie or Brienne. And one of the things that could happen is, if you really want some wish fulfillment, is Oathkeeper taking fire when this happens. When, when Stoneheart's stone heart is stabbed if you will so you've got a nissa nissa scenario could also be like a mercy killing maybe not who knows but it's a real potential for a flaming sword in that cave where we've already seen a flaming sword and then as tony points out jamie and brienne's weirwood dream have them both wielding flaming swords in a cave so i'm not sure how that's all gonna combust together but uh i'd like to hear everyone's ideas just to pull the talk from like themes and stuff into like what's going to happen in the winds of winter what do you guys think is going to happen in that cave 
You've convinced me. If I do not see a flaming sword, I am going to put the book down and walk away. <laughs> All right. Better happen. I can't remember. Does Jamie have Widow's Whale at all? Or is that still in King's Landing? Well, that's the show. That's mostly a show thing. I don't think the last we heard it was in King's Landing after the red or the purple wedding. You know, Joffrey had it at the purple wedding. We haven't heard from it since then. I don't think Jamie has it or he, w- he would have said something probably, right? Yeah. So they're not they're not ready to be reunited yet, although we hope that's coming. I believe Tommen has widow's whale. Right, he probably would. Yeah. That yeah, it widow's whale passes to Tommen. From what I'm reading, it's being kept at the Red Keep until Tommen is old enough to wield it. That doesn't that mean sense. that Jamie couldn't end up with it somehow, but I mean that's the last we knew is that it was like now it's Tommen's sword and they're holding it um and keeping for him till he's older. All right, well, so setting aside Widow's Whale, we've got Oathkeeper down there, and we've got Brienne and Jamie, and I think we all know that Brienne's not going to just serve up Jamie's head on a platter. Even if she starts to try to force herself to do that, she won't be able to go through with that. So what do you guys think is going to happen? Emma? No, don't shake your head. Give me a guess. I'm awful at predictions. Okay. Um... What kinds See, of things I'm, I'm could happen? To the, I'm wedded to the idea of like Arya coming back and offering mercy to her own mum, just because I think that's that's dark and brutal, but also like I don't know, I, I quite like the idea of it. Um, so, but I'm not. I'm, I have no idea how Jamie and Brienne would get out of the situation without doing something about Stoneheart. So, well, they could just fight their way out, um, and Stoneheart's left. You know, I'll get you next time, gadget in the cave or whatever. Say, oh, someone else. Can, but I have this idea that there'll be kind of like a Deus Ex Machina idea um, of like the wolf pack coming and messing all that stuff up that some other folks have met, you know, have mentioned is like what might happen in kind of the prologue and whatever. So I, I, I very much think that that is going to end up getting resolved by an external force acting on what's happening in the cave. And people being like pulled out to deal with something else, um, but that's my that's my thought. Please. Oh my gosh, on. Mary! I, so to leapfrog off of your idea, one of my one of the things I really want to see happen because I think it would be completely heartbreaking and it would just really bother me, but it would be also like so satisfying. Um, would be if the wolf pack came in, messed everything up, and Arya had to face Lady Stoneheart because there's Arya. She's lost her humanity. She's lost her family. And she sees her mother as this revenant. And maybe it will be Arya's um, mercy that puts Lady Stoneheart out of her mercy and also um, works as a way to bring back Arya's humanity. Yeah, I would really, really like to see that happen. Yes. So that's actually the part I wanted to key in on, on the idea of a flaming sword being created when if Stoneheart were to be stabbed, is because there is symbolism about that fire locked in that stone heart. Even though it's cold, frozen stone, like we're talking about petrified weirwood and stuff like that, there is still a seed of fire in there that can be reawakened. And think about Sansa in the veil. That's where it really becomes clear. There's good lines about her red hair showing at the roots, Okay, it's like coming back. 
And then there's um, she dyes her hair chestnut. And of course, chestnut is the idea of a seed that's inside you that can that's going to bloom again. And we all know that Sansa is going to cast off the Elaine Stone thing. She's going to leave the veil. She's going to dye her, you know, let the dye run out and let her red, you know, kiss by fire hair come back. So I think that that's and, and and when you're talking about restoring her humanity to Arya, that's the same idea in a thematic way, where she's she's even though she's dead and has a cold heart, um, she will help to warm and soften Arya's heart and bring it back to life. So it's there's really interesting ice and fire flips and swings that are going on here. All right, let's get back on the train here. Uh, so next topic, and by the way, from here on out, there's going to be probably. Well, I, never mind. I won't make any promises. Let's just go for it. So the ghost of High Heart, the ghost of High Heart, to, uh, to point, is labeled as a specifically an old one in A Storm of Swords. Tell her, the Lightning Lord commanded Thoros. The Red Priest squatted down beside her. My lady, he said, the Lord granted me a view of River Run, an island in a sea of fire, it seemed. The flames were leaping lions with long crimson claws, and how they roared. A sea of Lannisters, my lady. Riverrun will soon come under attack. Arya felt as though he'd punched her in the belly. No. Sweetling, said Thoros, the flames do not lie. Sometimes I read them wrongly, blind fool that I am, but not this time, I think. The Lannisters will soon have Riverrun under siege. Rob will beat them. Arya got a stubborn look. He'll beat them like he did before. Your brother may be gone, said Thoros. Your mother as well. I did not see them in the flames. This wedding the old ones spoke of, a wedding on the twins, she has her own ways of knowing things, that one. The werewoods whisper in her ear when she sleeps. If she says your mother is gone to the twins. So obviously she's labeled an old one. That's notable. Um, she's hearing the whispering of the weirwoods, so that's sim- you know simple enough. She's the ghost of the high heart, so she's literally haunting the weirwoods. Um, it's and I talked about this more in the last episode, but there's God's eye symbolism, an island in a sea of fire. I don't need to repeat myself. I think you all remember that it was just two weeks ago. So that's what's going on. There's God's eye symbolism. She's an old one. She's an old crone. She's a weirwood ghost. Uh, and here is the actual description of her. And I, I think we've all heard it before, but it's good to go ahead and read this and go ahead and let Emma take over the reading. So go ahead, Emma. That night, the wind was howling almost like a wolf, and there were some real wolves off to the west giving it lessons. Notch, Angai, and Merita Moontown had the watch. Ned, Gendry, and many of the others were fast asleep when Arya spied the small pale shape creeping behind the horses, thin white hair flying wild as she leaned upon a gnarled cane. The woman could not have been more than three feet tall. The firelight made her eyes gleam as red as the eyes of John's wolf. He was a ghost too. Arya stole closer and knelt to watch. Thoros and Lem were with Lord Berwick when the dwarf woman sat down uninvited by the fire. She squinted at them with eyes like hot coals. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, The quote continues. She had but a single tooth remaining. Give me wine or I will go, 
my bones are old. My joints ache when the winds do blow, and up here the winds are always blowing. A silver stag for your dreams, my lady, Lord Beric said with solemn courtesy. Another, if you have news for us. I cannot eat a silver stag nor ride one. A skin of wine for my dreams and for my news. A kiss from the great oaf in the yellow cloak. The woman cackled. Aye, a sloppy kiss, a bit of tongue. It has been too long, too long. His mouth will taste of lemons and mine of bones. I am too old. I, Lem complained, too old for wine and kisses. All you'll get from me is the flat of my sword, crone. My hair comes out in handfuls and no one has kissed me for a thousand years. It is hard to be so old. Well, I will have a song then, a song from Tom O'Sevens for my news. You will have your song from Tom, Lord Beric promised. He gave her the wineskin himself. The dwarf woman drank deep, the wine running down her chin. When she lowered the skin, she wiped her mouth with the back of a wrinkled hand and said, Sour wine for sour tidings. What could be more fitting? The king is dead. Is that sour enough for you? Arya's heart caught in her throat. Okay, so the old one has old bones. I mean, that's great because we identified old bones as another old one's flag. So George has put them both on the ghost of High Heart. That's great. So that's one of those nice confirmation things. And she even says it twice. So here she's demanding, quote, a bit of tongue, which I, I'd nominate that for one of the best lines in the whole book, by the way. It's great. And well-read, Gretchen. Um, so think of the idea of a flesh-eating weirwood here. I think that's what's being implied. And then she, instead of a bit of tongue, she settles instead for the red wine that looks like blood and runs out of her mouth and gives her the bloody weirwood, you know, blood, uh, the blood-drinking bloody mouth of a weirwood, and she's already got the red eyes. So this is perfect weirwood stigmata imagery. But it's the important thing is that she's consuming a sacrifice here. And then she also says, the king is dead right after she drinks the wine. So it's kind of like, you know, sim anyways, you get it. So what's interesting is that Bar it's Barak who hands her the blood red wine. And I've pointed that out as Azor high giving his blood and life to the weirwoods as a way of going in the weirwoods. And similarly, Barak also gives his flame of life to dead Catelyn, who is another weirwood goddess, which kind of points to Stoneheart and Ghost of Highheart being parallel figures. Maybe. And Melisandre is another fiery weirwood goddess, and she takes the life fires of Stannis and then wants to do the same with Davos and Jon. The shadow babies that Mel makes out of these fires seem to parallel the Night's Watch, men who are black shadows and who are aligned with fire. And again, I'll say that I've always read Beric's Knights of the Hollow Hill to parallel the Night's Watch green zombies as well. And of course, Wiz the Smith, you guys all know the Hollow Hills essay from Wiz the Smith, calling the Brotherhood the Knights of the Hollow Hill really makes me think of them as green zombies, people who came out of a weirwood cave, who were hiding in the caves with the children of the forest, quite possibly. But then, of course, the uh, the others are icy she, and the, the she means the people of the mounds. So it's uh, not clear cut. <laughs> in any case, the ghost of the high heart is probably the easiest to identify in terms of a weirwood goddess, weirwood ghost figure. Now, clearly, she's not a corpse queen, knight's queen figure, and there's no icy symbolism about her. So to me, this is the place to anchor our idea of the ghost of Nissa Nissa, the weirwood goddess archetype. 
because this figure leaves little doubt that some part of Nissa Nissa does indeed linger inside the Weirwoods. The fact we get a Weirwood-associated last hero figure, Barrack, seeking out the ghost of the High Heart amongst the Weirwood stumps, seems like an echo of the last hero seeking out the children of the forest for aid in defeating the others. And of course, that's who relies on the ghost of Nissa Nissa for aid, the Night's Watch and the last hero. So that's the end of the Ghost of the High Heart scripted section. And now I'll open it up for thoughts on the Ghost of High Heart. So people are point when you talked about Nissa Nissa being in the trees, I immediately thought of the conversation we had on whichever the live stream it was, where we talked about how everyone who goes into the weirwood is looking through Nissa Nissa's eyes because she's the weirwood net and how um, Nissa Nissa as the one who's like sending the visions that like people are like seeing what is in her mind um, and seeing what in some sense, like she has them. And that was what I thought of here. It was like, you have the ghost of high heart. You have this ghost woman in the trees who speaks in prophecies and visions that other people then have to interpret what she says. Like she doesn't tell them other than the one, like the bit of news, like anytime oh, she gives a vision, okay. she just, she just tells them like, I saw a maid at a wedding feast with purple serpents in her hair. And the people have to interpret what does that mean? I see. So it's almost like a way of Martin showing us that figure implanting dreams into people's heads. It's just a little bit less literal. She's telling them about her dreams but it's almost the same thing. Very good. Yeah, Very good. They, have, they have to then interpret what her visions mean um, based on whatever context they have for that. It's just like Thoros reading the flames. Like he sees, it's just, it's an oral story as opposed to like a, oh. an actual vision. Well, that really reminds me about how Bran in the Weirwood Cave sees his first batch of Weirwood visions when he's in the throne and eats the paste. But then they carry him back to his chambers and he's gazing at the fire and then it doesn't even say that he falls asleep. It just says the next thing he remembered, he's seeing visions through the weirwood again. So whether it's literal or not, Martin pulled a switch there where he's like, here's Bran seeing weirwood visions with weirwood paste. And then here's Bran peering into the flames and seeing weirwood visions. And it's very like what Thoros did where he looked into the fire and saw the same thing that the ghost of the High Heart saw, put it together and was like, uh, yeah, we shouldn't go there. Right. Just, and which is which is the thing that the crone does because we talked about the crone being a giver of wisdom and the crone being a storyteller. I mean, that's kind of what old Nan is doing. She's telling stories that Bran then has to like, in some sense, like interpret what they mean. Like, is this literally true? Is this the past? Is this the future? Like he hasn't thought about it that way, but we do as the audience. We look at old Nan's tales and we say, okay, this is about the past, but this may tell us something about the future too and the president and what they're fighting for. And they're just stories as opposed to visions, but that's what old Nan is doing. I think that fits really well into the, um, into the kind of cosmic horror element of the crone because she is the ghost of high heart is the knower of the truth that should be unknowable to normal humans. Right. And then when what she says is broken down and interpreted, like taken from the old the old one source of knowledge and translated into the human source of knowledge, it becomes terrible and horrible. And it, it's that that kind of process of translating the truth into what humans can understand that 
that kind of creates the the creates the tension for the ghost of high heart character for the old man type character for any of the crone type characters and i really i really like that and i think it also enforces that idea of shared dreaming yeah it makes me have the chills makes me think nice. of, um, there have been multiple sorry sammy go on oh no go ahead emma let's see let's see how you're doing so multiple people in the chat have been crying out oracle of delphi oracle of delphi as <laughs> someone who was saying like someone who gives a prophecy and then other people have to interpret it and whoopsie daisy they interpret it wrong and then greek tried um <laughs> That's what I was going to bring up too. Also, like the whole concept of prophecy and how often it's interpreted wrongly, especially when it's handed over to human hands. And I also thought of the Oracle Delphi. Good call. Good call, Chad. Nice. And someone was asking about whether we might be able to make Lightbringer by stabbing a weirwood tree. And that's, of course, possible because a weirwood is analogous to Nissa Nissa. And we've got all kinds of sword tree ideas with a brand stalker sword from Norse myth. And um, then there's also a ravenous reader chimes in that she thinks that Bran would be the symbol of a Lightbringer sword, you know, stuck into the tree. And that's very, very much correct. The Green Seer entering the Weirwood is is like the sword entering Nissa Nissa uh, in a lot of ways. So that's very cool. And of course, Bran is the burning brand on Ply to the Forehead. Uh, he is he is a Lightbringer child for sure. Well, to think of other prophetic figures, I'm just going to start going off into like theory land. This is just where my brain goes. So I have no idea if this is exactly what the story is doing. But if Nissa Nissa has something she wants to communicate, if there is some larger message or theme behind all of the visions that she sends to people, and we have characters, human characters, like um, Melisandre doesn't admit it, but she can be, well, not consistently but she can be wrong thoros admits that he can misread the flames like that makes me think of cassandra who was cursed with prophecy but prophecy that no one would believe and you have this like think of prophecy from the perspective of if there is some kind of consciousness of nissa nissa lingering in the weirwoods and she wants to communicate something imagine just how sucky it would be to be that consciousness and be like come on, come on guys like get what i'm trying to tell you and they can't like the humans are misinterpreting prophecy left and right, um, whether it be about themselves, about other people. There's a there's a tragic nature to prophecy if it is motivated by some kind of person's consciousness. If you have a seer who, like, some kind of prophetic character who is behind the visions and trying to send them, then there's a tragedy involved as well when they are misunderstood and misinterpreted. So there could be a layer of like the tragedy of Nissa Nissa being that like no one understands what she's trying to say if she is indeed the one behind them. You know who that automatically made me think of is Danny's the dreamer because <sighs> he's the perfect, yes. you know, sort of the perfect example of that. Like very, very few people believed her even though she knew exactly what the, the truth was about the doom. So so I think there's a lot of precedent for, for that idea in the backstory that George R. R. Martin has built. Well, and that's really cool because that means that it gives Bran a little something more to do. Like, what does he have to do? Not just like, oh, find out how to beat the White Walkers. He's, he's more like putting together the puzzle 
of what Nissa Nissa is trying to communicate. There's some he's got to understand something a lot deeper and more meaningful that that maybe no one's understood yet. You know, so that that might be the thing that Bran needs to do. Um, you know, uh, it's he has to be a good reader. I mean, the layers to this can be so you can get really meta about it that because makes me so happy. I love it. He's reading the visions in the same way they talk about reading the flames, and it's very analogous to like us as readers trying to figure out. What is the larger story? What is the larger narrative? What are the pieces behind this? So like, I mean, we're all kind of brand with these books. Well, there's another layer too to that as well. If we're thinking about it in the context of, of Danies, the dreamer, is that he not only has to get it right, he has to convince other people that he has it right. Um, and and I think we, we're going to see brand wrestling with this. You know, we've had you know, a blood raven, raven type figure that had to convince Bran to come to him. And now we have Bran who's going to be in the position, you know, potentially of needing to uh, convince other people that he knows what is going to happen. And for sure, we're going to see this in the, in the television show, right? Hold on. Um, on. Cabrandra? <laughs> Brassandra? That's perfect. That? Cassandra Bran. Very cool. I like that. I like that. That this, like, because Nissa Nissa needs closure as much as anybody, I feel like. Um, so if somebody could understand what it is she's trying to say, that would be very satisfying to me. We shall see. I, I'm very interested in um, whatever John's, if Jon Snow talks to Lyanna as uh, ghost when he's, you know, dead inside ghost which is something I think is very likely to happen. I think that's probably how we'll get the RLJ reveal or maybe the beginning of the reveal. Um, so that would probably have a lot of parallels to this idea of John trying to receive communication from Nissa Nissa's ghost when John is communicated to from Leanna's ghost. We'll see. Sandra, did you have something you want to say? Uh, yeah, when, you, when we were mentioning um, Bran and him being able to like they have to figure out Nisa Nisa in the Werewood Net. It made me think of what we figured out so far from the one and a 20 second trailer we've had, or at least some of the speculation and thoughts that are going around. Um, so it made me just kind of wonder, you know, like Bran as the one who has to defeat Nisa or who has to defeat the Night King. I'm wondering if, you know, like the Night King, they're, they're saying he has a target and it's Bran. He, and they've been waiting for so long for him. I'm just wondering what that means. Like, if he's the only one who can understand Nisa Nisa, and why would that be? Did you follow that? Yeah. Yeah. I I think... I, it's just hard to say what the show is doing. Like, we're so deep in metaphysics here in the book, it's hard to say what the show is doing with that. But I do wonder... You know, we see that the Night King can inhabit the astral plane so i don't know i just i don't think the show is gonna quite oh no i don't think the show is i'm just trying to take the little tidbits and things we might glean from the show and apply it to our own special brand of interpretation can i bring up something um Mm -hmm. 
uh, enough for E in the chat said that Brian has to listen. The children speak mimics wind and streams and everything. And I really like the idea of Bran having to figure out, um, kind of like uh, Brandon the Builder, having to figure out the speech of Nissa Nissa because there's kind of a precedent for Nissa Nissa's speech being the speech of the children of the forest. Um, we had the line from the prologue and, yeah. um, you know, the, talking about, we think that it might have been Nissa Nissa's spirit um, trying to communicate to Waymar through the trees and the wind and the owls. And um, I think that could be something, maybe. You know, that's one thing that's interesting about that is that Bran is the believer in old Nan stories. So it's an example of how Nissa Nissa fits into the corn archetype because mm. we are thinking about Bran as the interpreter, as the one who can see the truth. And so if he can do it with old Nan in, in her position as the crone, then perhaps he's also the one analogously who understands this and that. Yeah, that's cool. So we just found a whole bunch of precedents for the idea of a brand type figure having to understand the speech of the weirwoods, but not just the weirwoods, specifically the weirwood goddess, people like old Nan. That's really interesting. That's fun. I love it when things come together. This is going so well. Right. And especially because like what you're saying, Mary, especially because so many people dismiss old Nan as like, oh, that's just old wives tales. That's just stories. That doesn't mean anything. That's not real. So you're right. Bran is, is the one who he literally like listen. He sits at her feet and learns from her and listens to her. And he's the one who believes the truth in her stories in a way that no one else does. So yeah, that he could very well. I feel like that if Martin goes that direction, we will look back and say, that was the foreshadowing that Bran would be the one to listen and hear and understand the truth of, of what Nissa Nissa in the Weirwood is trying to communicate because he's been doing that with old Nan since the beginning. And we see that with, with children and other prophetic characters elsewhere in the story. And, and the example that comes to mind is, is Patchface and Shireen, right? So Shireen is the one who listens to Patchface. And it's a little bit far afield from the kind of cor- Crone analogy that we're talking about now, but it's an example of the same dynamic of the child listening to, you know, either the old woman or the prophet. Um, and I think that um, there's there's probably there's there's quite a bit there just in what we've been discussing so far. Okay, but right. now I'm really interested in the idea of thinking of Patchface as a, as a potential crone figure. I think that could be something we could look into. All right. Well, that broke my brain. Um, <laughs> Emma, let's check in with you and see how your connection's doing. We can see you. Okay. Um, my voice isn't doing anything matrixy. I'm not going to ruin the podcast. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to ruin the podcast. <laughs> cool. No, perfect. It looks. It sounds good. I'll uh, I'll start complaining if it doesn't, but it, it looks pretty good. Um, so we're going to move on to some Night's Queen figures. We've got two old ones quotes which both apply to women that seem to be cast as ice-associated Night's Queen figures. So let's have a look at those to balance out the ice and fire equation. And, uh, yeah, go ahead, uh, Gretchen, go ahead and keep reading. He had liked the look of Craster's keep himself. Craster lived high as a lord there, so why shouldn't he do the same? That would be a laugh. Chet the leechman's son, a lord with a keep. His banner could be a dozen leeches on a field of pink. But why stop in Lord? Maybe he should be a king. Man's raiders started out a crow. I could be a king same as him and have me some wives. Craster had 19, not even counting the young ones, the daughters he hadn't gotten around to bedding yet. 
Half of them wives were as old and ugly as Craster, but that didn't matter. The old ones Chet could put to work cooking and cleaning for him, pulling carrots and slapping pigs, while the young ones warmed his bed and bore his children. So, first of all, fuck Chet. Um, he's a he's a good candidate to go far in the Song of Ice and Fire March Madness least favorite characters tournament. And in fact, I thought about this this morning. I think Chet might be the most unsympathetic character in the whole books because Joffrey at least is thirteen, and although he's a bad apple and stuff, he's thirteen and he's raised by horrible people. So you can find a scrap, just a scrap, of sympathy or understanding. But Chet is. Just singularly loathsome. What do you think? I mean, him or Ramsey, I guess, right? I really hate Chet. Like, he's on my top three. It would not save from a burning building. Just, wow. This is George Martin's ultimate, like, incel-turned-violent-killer character right here. This is basically him. So, anyways, fuck Chet. But, second of all, Craster's wives, with air quotes are obvious mothers of the others figures, of course. And Craster is a White Walker spawning Night's King figure. And as we can see, this is a hub of Old One's activity. In the last episode, we looked at all the evidence that the others have an origin with the green men who seem to be the Old Ones. And here we see the implication that Night's Queen, the first mother of the others, was in some sense an Old One. Now here's a similar quote about the daughters of Walter Frey, who's very similar to Craster, another Night's King figure, kind of incesty vibe going on, you know. Um, everyone looks the same in any case. Uh, go ahead and read this one. Your family is always pissed on me. Don't deny it. Don't lie. You know it's true. Years ago, I went to your father and suggested a match between his son and my daughter. Why not? I had a daughter in mind, sweet girl, only a few years older than Edmure. But if your brother didn't warm to her, I had others he might have had. Young ones, old ones, virgins, widows, whatever he wanted. No, Lord Hoster would not hear of it. Sweet words, he gave me excuses. But what I wanted was to get rid of a daughter. So the notable NIC people piping up for Craster as the worst character. Yeah, I mean, Craster, check, Ramsey, take your pick. They're definitely in the same barrel. But yeah, duly noted. So notable things here in this scene... Rob promises to marry a fray woman, and the haunting presence of the horned moon is outside the castle, as we see in this next bit. The rest was only haggling. A swollen red sun hung low against the western hills when the gates of the castle opened. The drawbridge creaked down, the portcullis winched up, and Lady Catelyn Stark rode forth to rejoin her son and his lord's bannerman. And then a moment later, when Kat relates the details of the marriage agreement to Rob, it says, I consent, Rob said solemnly. He had never seemed more manly to her than he did in that moment. Boys might play with swords, but it took a lord to make a marriage pact, knowing what it meant. They crossed at Evenfall as a horned moon floated upon the river. The double column wound its way through the gate of the eastern twin like a great steel snake, slithering across the courtyard, into the keep and over the bridge, to issue forth once more from the second castle on the west bank. Catelyn rode at the head of the serpent, with her son and her uncle Sir Brynden and Sir Steverin Frey. Behind followed nine-tenths of their horse, knights, lancers, free riders, and mounted bowmen. It took hours for them all to cross. 
Afterward, Catelyn would remember the clatter of countless hooves on the drawbridge, the sight of Lord Walder Frey in his litter watching them pass, the glitter of eyes peering down through the slats of the murder holes in the ceiling as they rode through the water tower. Yeah, and uh, thanks, Kelly Morlock. Kelly Morlock rightly points out that uh, we probably don't even need to give that kind of glory to the worst characters. That's, that's probably a good call. We actually don't need that tournament. So thanks, Kelly. Setting me straight. But in this quote here, there's lots to discuss. And what stands out are the heavenly bodies, the swollen, dying sun setting in the western hills, and then the horned moon floating on the waters. I also like how it says, it takes a lord to make a pact, and then immediately comes the line about the horned moon. The horned lord is, is what we're trying to get at here. So Rob is the pact-making horned lord, and he's unfortunately also sealing his own fate, which comes later at the Red Wedding, which you can see foreshadowed here by the eyes peering through the murder holes. His army is a great steel serpent, and one wonders if George is pairing the snake and the horned lord symbolism in imitation of the snake which Cernunos always holds. Perhaps. We've also got horned serpents and uh, dragons with horns and serpent necks too, so... Anyways, that's, that's what we have for Night's Queen figures who carry the epithet Old One. So some discussion points here might be what the implications of Rob promising to marry one woman and then marrying another might be, as well as the implication of Craster's wives as old ones who are kept in some sort of slavery or thraldom, with Gilly being one whom escaped. That gets back to that whole imprisoned Nissa Nissa idea. So what do you guys think about that? I've got a couple of parallel figures Val and more in a white mask that I want to break, uh, bring up, but let me stop and let somebody chime in. So something that I've been thinking about for a long time is the idea of the temple prostitute and the idea that Nissa Nissa could be an inherited title. And if you kind of mush those two things together, you could end up with a female who is some sort of an oracle like we were just talking about, who is captured or is forced into servitude like a temple prostitute and who, I'm losing my train of thought, never mind, come back to me later. (laughs) Sorry. You were kind of talking about this to me a little bit. So your idea was basically Nisa Nisa was an inherited title. So that temple prostitute, that oracle, um, that inherited role might have been passed along to her, right? Yes. Okay. And thank you. That kind of got me back on track. And the idea that we've got Craster with all his, all of his wives and we've got, um, you know, Val pushed away in a tower um, and, you know, all the figures that are locked away in towers. Um, to me, it's kind of like all kind of coming together into this idea that I'm having a really hard time describing right now. Sorry, I'm not feeling the best today. I've got kind of a cold. Um so but. building on that idea a little, uh, Mel, um, so obviously Craster's children are themselves sacrifices to the wood and to the others. So in that sense, the um, sort of the role of the wives as um, sort of the slave sex workers, as we see sometimes in the sort of the fire temples of R'hllor, um, could be that that sort of idea where their sex work is is in essence like a sacrifice or a devotion to, in this case, the others. And then gets back to sort of the Night's Queen stuff that way. Yeah, the idea of Nissa Nissa imprisoned 
so this is like Nissanissa's spirit stuck on the cold side, and she's she's making the others almost against her will, or it's like her children are being taken from her and turned into others or something like that. That's interesting. And one also thinks of Jane Poole, who has tons of Night's Queen symbolism uh, when she is at Winterfell, you know, uh, married, quote-unquote, to Ramsay. That's another... There are a lot of Targ wives, too, um, especially in Fire and Blood. A lot of the, like, Targ wives have very much the, like, whether it be Baylor. So shout out Amanda, a.k.a. The Disputed Lands. That's That video has been, her video on Baylor the Blessed and his wives has, like, totally started spinning my thoughts. Like, there's stuff that I'm going to talk about that's related to that. But Baylor's three wives um, that he locks up in the tower, one of whom has very strong Night's Queen symbolism. All three of them seem to reflect one an aspect of Nissanissa in some way or another, just not all the same. But even a lot of the Targ women we see in Fire and Blood have like that kind of like captive vibe in some way. There are a lot of, um, yeah, there are some weird goddess figures. There's a lot of Night's Queen figures in there too. And even just as I've been talking with the fattest leech about incest being used as a form of control, um, which we see with Craster, but I think we're also meant to see it with the Targaryens. Um, incest is a form of controlling female uh, fertility, controlling female power, making sure that women have a very specific role they can't really step outside of. Um, And so I think that that applies to a lot of the Targaryen women, even if we're more used to seeing them as like powerful figures because they have dragons, like there is a level in which like they are held captive by their family's commitment to things like incest and dragon riding and that being a form of controlling, you know, women, especially if Dragon riding is like a female linked trait, which I know that like Viseria has been looking into. So all of that kind of goes together because I do think Craster and Targaryens, I think we're meant to think of them as parallel, parallel things. Like when we see Craster, I think we're meant to reflect on what it means for the Targaryens. One of the other ideas that we have been throwing around on this theme is the idea of, um, you know, um, Nissa Nissa supplanting the Night's Queen or one Night's Queen supplanting another Night's Queen. And I think this this deals with this idea of a rivalry between different females, which ties in an interesting way to the Nissa Nissa being an inherited title. And so one of the examples that I have of that is a um, you know competition between two figures that have Night's Queen-like qualities is Val and Selyse, Stannis' wife. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Ly- so, Lysa and Sansa, of course, are the, the first pair we found like that. But yeah, exactly. Um, which we talked, which you uh, were exploring as as part of the Signs and Portals um, Sansa series. And so, I think one of the things that's that's interesting about that is in you know in the context of you know Solis and Val, you have Solis that that is active in locking Val in the tower. Um, and we see the same thing that's happening with um, with Sansa and Lysa. Um, and, and obviously those names are both very icy, icy names. Um, and so I think that there may be something about female power being turned against other females that is also inherent in this, um, in the idea of the Night's Queen. Cersei so, and Marge. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great example as well. And it's an idea that we have, uh, that I think is worth thinking more about um, but but I don't know that I have a really direct 
direct idea for exactly what it means. Other than that, um, I think we, we need to kind of be careful about the, it's kind of like a cautionary tale of this powerful figure looking to defeat other women. And then perhaps that ends up being their own downfall, which is exactly what we see with, um, you know, Lysa and Sansa. And I think what might end up happening with Solis and Val. So, okay. So this, I'm excited about this, Mary, this is a great take. And I just realized that this is, this is in the stars. I mean, this is in the astronomy pattern really clearly. So you got your fire moon and your ice moon, right? The fire moon blows up. We know at least one fire moon meteor goes into the ice moon. That's the dragon locked in ice. We usually talk about that as a male being or knight's king, you know, giving his seed to knight's queen, who's the ice moon. But of course, you can imagine this thing any way you want. What we really have is a piece of the fire moon going into the ice moon. So that's a piece of the fire queen going into the ice queen, if you will, or the realm of the ice queen. That is what Sansa does. She is a fire moon character. She goes through various transformations as she runs away from King's Landing. Then she turns cold and invades the veil, which is the ice moon. And she pushes out Lysa, literally pushes her out the moon door and, and, and she falls to the earth. So I've suggested that when the fire moon meteor hits the ice moon, that's what creates ice moon meteors because the impact of the fire moon pushes out a piece of ice moon. And so that piece of ice moon falling to the earth is where we get the white dawn meteor. Okay, so we have the white meteor and the black meteor. That's how it happens. That's how we get a piece of ice moon on the earth. This is an old theory that I kind of pushed to the side, but this is what we're talking about. Sansa is the fire moon going into the veil. She pushes out an ice moon meteor, which is um, Lysa falling out, but that she's also like an old knight's queen. So it's like the dying Nissa Nissa becomes a new knight's queen and evicts the old knight's queen. I mean, that's exactly what happens there. So I'm not even sure what that means, but it's definitely a, a thing. And it looks like Emma wants to get in. So um, one of the patterns that I spotted when I was reading through the quotes is that you see this pairing of young ones and old ones together quite a lot. So, um, for instance, like what Walder Frey said is um, he had young ones and old ones, virgins and widows. When um, Chet's talking about the women in the... Um, Craster's wives, he's talking about the young ones he wants to bed and the old ones he can put to work. And then um, even in the previous quotes, you've got your switchback stare quote where the new one rose to meet the old one. You've got the new god devouring the corpse of the old god. Um, so I wonder if if that usurpation cycle is, is meant to be explicit. Um, and so I had a quick look at young ones quotes earlier when I had this thought. And um, there's stuff like... Um, I think uh, the old bear says that the young ones need to forget who they were when they join the wall and things like this, that. And I, I think that that's a thingy. That's a good observation. You've got Arya also being tasked with forgetting who she was too, Emma. It feels like the, the female equivalent of, um, of uh, old men, like greybeards and green boys. Yeah. Especially because you often have like old women and children 
paired together. And that feels like the female equivalent of the Greybeards and Greek Boys is you have old women and children, which I think goes with the old with the old and the young ones. There's definitely some kind of I mean, and it's cyclical. It's 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 nature symbolism. It's the death, death of the old, birth of the new going on. Um, there's so, a lot of like old queen versus young queen that goes on. So maybe this is how it works on the on the on the ground, the on the ground version of this template. Uh, Nissa Nissa is killed. Her spirit goes into the weirwood net. Um, this I've been talking about this as then forcing out the others, but maybe this is also, or instead of, what forces out the old goddess spirit of the trees, which then manifests as Night's Queen. So when you have Night's King going north of the wall and seeing this woman, this Night's Queen woman, uh, who has weirwood-associated symbolism... Maybe that's not Nissa Nissa necessarily, but the thing that Nissa Nissa set an Azor High set free when when they went in there the first time. So this would be like again the original tree goddess kind of, which has been supplanted. Um, this I'll have to think about this more. My thoughts are just forming here. So let me actually read now that this little bit I got about these two other characters, Morna White Mask and Val, because they are other Ice Queen figures and they've got weirwood symbolism, essentially. Hang on so, a sec. Mary, Mary needs to bow out, so... Okay, cool. Let's let Mary go. Your son wants to watch trains on the computer. That's understandable. But, but... You may hear him begging to watch trains. Um, I did. We just heard that. Yeah, great. So, anyway, um, I, I so knew ma- I was ma- kind of... had a ticking time bomb here, but everyone has been awesome. This has been super great um and uh everyone have a good time well well i go watch trains i need help okay bye everyone okay bye that was so cute i need help i need help from my mom he just got in the train that's all oh man so more in a white mask is our first parallel figure that we want to talk about here. And she's a wildling woman. So go ahead, Gretchen. The warrior witch Morna removed her rearward mask just long enough to kiss his gloved hand and swear to be his man or his woman, whichever he preferred. So interestingly, John later confers Queensgate on Morna White Mask, which used to be named Snowgate before another Ice Queen figure, Alisane Targaryen, visited it and had it renamed, or at least it was renamed, in her honor. I don't mean it. She didn't. I don't mean to imply that she forced it. No, it was it was done voluntarily. But in any case, uh, both the idea of a queen's gate and a snow gate are intriguing, since the black gate weirwood face at the night fort may have been used to smuggle out the children of night's queen and king to the others. Those children might be thought of as bastards, snows like John, and of course they are turned into beings of ice and snow. The others. The weirwood itself is a gate, of course. We've been talking about that all day. And so here is this person with a weirwood mask in charge of a place called Queensgate. Very interesting. So then we have Val, who is another weirwood-associated ice queen. Did you follow me as well? John reached to shoo the bird away, but ended up stroking its feathers. The raven cocked its eye at him. Now! It muttered, bobbing its head knowingly. Then Ghost emerged from between two trees, with Val beside him. They looked as though they belonged together. Val was clad all in white, 
white woolen breeches tucked into high boots of bleached white leather, white bearskin cloak pinned at the shoulder with a carved weirwood face, white tunic with bone fastenings. Her breath was white as well, but her eyes were blue, her long braid the color of dark honey, her cheeks flushed red from the cold. It had been a long while since Jon Snow had seen a sight so lovely. Okay, so a white weirwood woman with blue eyes, a match for the white weirwood wolf with red eyes. Pale shadows of ice and fire, if you will. And then there's this quote. The road beneath the wall was as dark and cold as the belly of an ice dragon and as twisty as a serpent. Dolorous Ed led them through with a torch in hand. Mully had the keys for the three gates, where bars of black iron as thick as a man's arm closed off the passages. Spearmen at each gate knuckled their foreheads at Jon Snow, but stared openly at Val and her garin. When they emerged north of the wall, through a thick door made of freshly hewn green wood, the wildling princess paused for a moment to gaze out across the snow-covered field where King Stannis had won his battle. Beyond, the haunted forest waited, dark and silent. The light of the half-moon turned Val's honey-blonde hair a pale silver and left her cheeks as white as snow. She took a deep breath. The air tastes sweet. My tongue is too numb to tell. All I can taste is cold. Cold? Val laughed lightly. No, when it is cold, it will hurt to breathe when the others come. So it's interesting that Val and John passed through the belly of the ice dragon together, and then when they emerged north of the wall, which is the place where Night's King saw his queen, Val gets the Night's Queen treatment. Moon pale and snow white, and seemingly unperturbed by the extreme cold, which they remark upon after she rides away. It's a great scene, and once again, it clues us into the idea that Night's Queen, Ice Queen figures have a strong connection to the Weirwoods. And she's also, I'll also add that she's able to go in and out of the haunted forest where other men, you know, can't. So you can see, like, she's unperturbed by the cold, she's not scared of the forest, she goes in and out uh, like she's, you know, in charge of the place. So very, very cool. So thoughts, ladies? Let me make it more specific. Thoughts on the connection between Night's Queen and the Weirwoods and what we're seeing here. And also, Gretchen, uh, you got you had your ch- your catch here in the chat about Queensgate. I want you to go back for Oh, I mean, you can always rely on me to make catches like this, it seems like. <laughs> um, a Queensgate is also a birth canal. Um, literally the gate out of her womb. And if they're smuggling babies through the gate, I mean, it's babies being born through the Queensgate. Yeah, snow babies. So it's Snowgate and Queensgate. Yeah. Yep. Sounds frosty. Well, it's what's well, the cold womb of um, the Adara from the Ice Dragon, basically the cold that entered the womb and touched her, right? So. Right. Well, I mean, and that's what we see her with the belly of an ice dragon. They're literally going through the belly of the ice dragon and emerging on the other side. They're being like going through the abdomen and yeah. being born through the belly of the ice dragon. Same thing. So, very cool. Yeah, okay, that's starting to make a little more sense then to me. Yeah, for, for Martin seems to sometimes use belly or like tummy and stomach interchangeably with like female anatomy, with like womb, uterus yeah. or womb. Uh-huh. So sure. traveling through the belly of an ice dragon and then emerging the other side is like being born through a ice dragon's birth canal. And of course, we've got the, um, the idea of the black pond as a portal. We've got the womb of the world out there in the uh, green Dothraki Sea, and also at Winterfell in the Godswood, we have the parallel bottomless cold black pool. 
So that's a womb symbol as well. All right. Well, like I said, this is, um, we're going to have to pick this up uh, again because we haven't even gotten into thistle. We haven't done the wind, uh, the widow of the waterfront. Um, actually, I might try to get thistle here in uh, this, these couple of thistle quotes here before we stop, but we need to do the widow of the waterfront and we need to do Cersei and we need to do Maggie the Frog. And there's no way we're going to, uh, that's just, that's going to take too much time. And I love what we did here today. This is great. And so I think we're getting somewhere, but there's definitely a lot more to cover. So let's go ahead and, and do this thistle section. And then we'll probably wrap it up in about 10, 15 minutes here. Thistle the Wildling just does not get the specific Old One treatment, but she is absolutely central to the Nissa Nissa to Night's Queen transformation idea. So we do have to review her wig, <laughs> wig, wigwood stigmata, her weirwood stigmata in brief. The first thing to note is the weirwood tree being otherized in this Vermeer chapter. And actually, let's let Emma read again since she's back on the uh, connection. He could see the humped shapes of other huts buried beneath drifts of snow, and beyond them, the pale shadow of a weirwood armoured in ice. Okay, so this is an important symbol, one which we've, you know, we've quoted several times, because the weirwoods usually are described as bone white, with leaves like bloody hands or even a blaze of flame one time. But here there's no talk of blood or fire. Instead, the tree is described like an other, a pale shadow armoured in ice. Gets even worse after everyone dies and the whites march through town. Below the world had turned to ice. Fingers of frost crept slowly up the weirwood, reaching out for each other. The empty village was no longer empty. Blue-eyed shadows walk, walked amongst the mounds of snow. So fingers of frost are like the opposite of the bloody, fiery hand symbol of the weirwood leaves. And this completes the transformation idea. The weirwood net, or at least some part of it, is freezing over. The ice, in, you know, the fire symbols are turning into a parallel version, an ice version of that symbol. And of course, this happens right after Thistle is transformed, and her transformation mirrors that of the tree. Now, when Vermeer invades her, she gets the most horrible kind of vivid weirwood stigmata. She bites off her tongue, she claws out her eyes, weeps tears of blood dances blind and bloody under the moon. So the tongue is really important because that creates the silent weirwood, silenced woman symbolism. Shout out Melanie Lot 7's silenced woman essay and video, of course. But then after everything freezes over and the whites move in... The things below moved but did not live. One by one they raised their heads toward the three wolves on the hill. The last to look was the thing that had been Thistle. She wore wool and fur and leather, and over that she wore a coat of hoarfrost that crackled when she moved and glistened in the moonlight. Pale pink icicles hung from her fingertips, ten long knives of frozen blood. And in the pits where her eyes had been, a pale blue light was flickering, lending her coarse features an eerie beauty they had never known in life. She sees me. All right, it's a beautiful corpse lady with blue star eyes and icy skin that glistens in the moonlight. The serious moon. That's our night's queen figure for sure. But wasn't she just turning into a weirwood and dying a Nissa Nissa death? Well, 
Yes, yes, she was. And now she's the Night's Queen. Of course, this is the thing that had been Thistle, not necessarily Thistle's ghost, although we are really getting into fictional metaphysics here, and it's always a bit squishy, squish, squish. But but that's uh, that's what's at the heart of the bifurcation idea, is metaphysics. And there may be separate paths for Nissa Nissa's spirit and body. That's, that's the whole point of the bifurcation. So think about this. Um, those ten long pink knives of frozen blood, those are essentially ice swords and bloody ones at that. And that compares very well to Lady Stoneheart holding Oathkeeper, which is one half of Ned's ice sword, now dyed partially blood red, and of course it actually drank Ned's blood. So both Stoneheart and Whited Thistle have bloody ice swords, to put it simply. And that's, that's really something. Thistle's knives are pale pink and made of ice, while Oathkeeper is dark red and black and made of steel. So there are some notable differences, but they're also, they're definitely parallel symbols in some sense. And to that I might add that the glamoured Lightbringer Mel conjures up for Stannis is an icy sword in that it gives off no heat unless it's coated in wildfire, which happens one time. But after that, it's, it's from a glamour. And Maester Aemon points out, you know, does it have heat? No, it doesn't. So it's a cold Lightbringer. So this is another, another ice sword symbol, potentially. Now, one last parallel between frozen thistle and the frozen weirwood tree here. They both seem to see and judge Waymar. She sees me was the last line of this epic A Dance with Dragons prologue. And right before Varamir tries to body snatch thistle, we read... Varamir could see the werewolf's red eyes staring down at him from the white trunk. The gods are weighing me. A shiver went through him. He had done bad things, terrible things. So there you have it. Thistle is a weirwood goddess figure who ends up as a knight's queen. She turns from a fiery, or at least a warm, woman to an icy one, mirroring the freezing weirwood in the scene. Thistle's coat of hoarfrost is very like the mask that Ygritte wears when she dies and turns cold. And of course that line was, the ice crystals had settled over her face, and in the moonlight it looked as though she wore a glittering silver mask. And again, more in a white mask. So this is, this is a running theme that's going on here. And that's what I've got for this section, so comments from the panel. Just Starting to very... Anywhere. I was just going to say a very, very brief one. I do believe that the um, the Icy Queen in the Memory, Sour, and Thorn series wears a silver mask as well, which was mm. something that I thought of because I I mean, I was listening to the Memory, Sour, and Thorn uh, Between Two Werewoods that you did a couple of weeks ago. So I believe that that character who's like the Icy, the queen of the Icy, like evil Icy characters in Memory, Sour, and Thorn, I believe that she wears a silver mask as well. So that could be something Martin's playing on. Yeah, and it makes sense too. Of course, you know, cold silver moonlight kind of kind of fits. I want to just pipe in really quick and um, take note that Morna White Mask is kind of being being gender fluid. She says, "I could be your woman or your man." And then again, we have Thistle um, being kind of degendered and um, just becoming a thing. And so that's more of what we were talking about earlier. Yeah, and Varamir and her are both sharing her body, which is a, a male-female sort of union symbol there, too. Yeah, good good point. Go ahead, Gretchen. Don't hold back. 
I mean, I I always have lots of thoughts. So one of the things that I thought of was Val emerging as immune to the cold as she like travels through the belly of the ice dragon with John, who's a Night's King figure in that scene. So, and then tying that to the kind of bifurcation aspect, um, because I do, I do think that there's a bifurcation between her body and like, I don't really want to call it her soul, but like some kind of, at least like her spirit, some part of her like humanity or whatever you would call her personhood gets separated from her body. And you, you could think of that as like some part emerges as icy and some part emerges as made of fire. And it intrigues me that the icy part of Nissa is always associated with the Night's King and the fiery kind of ghost. So like the ghost, kind of like the remnant of like the impression of her spirit, if you're going to go for like whisper jewel type thing, like the impression of her soul is typically like fiery. And that tends to emerge when an Azor High figure dies. And those seem to be two different scenes happening there. You have a Night's King figure and then you have a Night's Queen alongside of him who's immune to cold. Like they seem to be similar, but not the same. That made me think of Thistle. So Thistle becomes the Night Queen figure after like she's been forced out of her body. Like Veramir forces her out and she's in some sense trapped in a way. And then and then her body becomes the thing that was Thistle. And the ice, like the icy queen, knight's queen figure, but only after her soul has already, in some sense, been like torn out of her or forced out. Yeah, yeah that's like a two-step process. It seems to mm-hmm. me potentially. I agree with I agree with all that. That I, I feel like that's what we're seeing, and I'm not, I'm not sure where Thistle's actual spirit goes in that scene, but I don't th- I don't think it's in her corpse by the time it's resurrected. I think it's only the it, only the smallest bit of the person, I think, might be left inside their whited corpse. I mean, not much. The, their spirit's got to be somewhere else, I have to think. Ravenous Reader thinks that, you know, at least symbolically, Veramir stole it, you know. Maybe it got stuck in the Weirwood tree, you know, on his way out or something like that. I mean, I'm not sure that that's necessarily that part of it is being spelled out in that scene, but there's definitely, you can see the the split. And then it's the thing that had been Thistle that becomes this corpse queen figure, so. Right, well, and it's it's like Sansa being kidnapped by Peter to become Elaine Stone. And she's then like, she thinks that she's hollow and she's empty and there's nothing mm-hmm. inside her, there's nothing like spiritual or religious left inside her. Yep. And paralleling the empty godswood in the area. You're right, the godswood without gods, right? Mm. Yep. Or, um, and that's why I think of Baylor's sisters. This is why I think Baylor's sisters in the tower are such a great place to go because this the sister that's associated with the the Night's Queen, who's got all the Night's Queen symbolism, she's the Septa. She dresses all in white and embroiders like little gold, you know, thing, like little gold dragons on her dress. She's also the most like demure and submissive. And it says that she does what, like she's the one who like is totally fine with being locked in the tower. It's It's almost as if she has no like, spirit inside of her she's the most mindless um of all of of Baylor's sisters is the one who's just kind of like accepts her fate in the tower whereas um Dana and Elena so the older and the younger ones like Dana is the one who keep Dana the defiant is the one who keeps trying to get out get out like the weirwood goddess keeps trying to get out and gets pregnant and then Elena is the youngest and she's the one who is like the most clever and she becomes like a crone figure eventually. But it's the middle sister, it's Reina. I think her name is Reina, is the one who's 
the Night's Queen figure and she's the most demure and submissive, almost as if she's got no spirit sense in her, um, that she's empty kind of of like that fighting spirit that the other sisters have. That's cool. That I, makes me want to talk to Amanda about all of this and get her thoughts on it. I'm talking about Crowfood's daughter, of course, Disputed Lands. And I also kind of want to read back over some of those, um, the Baylor's Wives thing. That sounds really interesting, Gretchen. I, I and, think uh, it's a great one to look at. Yeah, so all the Maiden in the Tower stuff, I kind of want to go back and look at again. Like, what does Ashara Dane jumping from the tower mean into the sea, you know? Is that like Nissa Nissa escaping? Because she, she's like in the White Tower, but then she jumps out and goes into the sea. And maybe she's not dead. So that's, it's like that was the cover story. And really she, you know, didn't die. I don't know where she is. Um, Helen, Helen Reed's wife in, in the swamp, maybe. Uh, but uh, No, she's Septa Lamour. Everyone yeah, knows. Um, it is known. I don't think so. Yeah. Septa Lamour is an actual lemon tree. I don't know what the hell y'all are smoking. <laughs> I cannot do this. Cannot even do this. Well, it is time to wrap it up. Let's let's turn over to some Sanri appreciation because she's worked up another masterpiece, a Lady Stoneheart masterpiece. It's a dark St. Patrick's Day miracle. Today on this holiest of days for Druids being sent out of Ireland, I give you Lady Stoneheart with some green. (laughs) Yeah, I love the green. I was just thinking, I love the green in her hair. Yes, like, like, uh, kind of like she's been, you know, in the water. Yeah, I was going for, and you know, the the noose. You got to put the noose in there. Well, and she is a grisly sort of mermaid, being a Tully, you know, an undead Tully living under the sea and all that shit. You guys dreamt of a woman who was a fish. You guys understand me so well. I dreamt of a woman who is a fish. <laughs> one more. One that's more. my that's my high heart voice there. You just fully committed. I wasn't quite ready to fully commit. I was like, I don't know whether I want to go full crazy voice, but you no, it's it. it's just it. the mod. All of my female voices are just the Monty Python voice in various versions. Dennis, there's some lovely filth down here. Oh, how did you say it's you know? all the filth farmer in your heart? He's not what? the messiah. He's a very naughty boy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then you just wrinkle it up a bit. So yeah, jumping out of the tower. So jump, Ravenous Reader's riffing on this. So jumping out of the tower, definitely like escaping the weirwood trees. And she's saying that jumping out of the window is kind of like the soul leaving the eyes, perhaps. That's interesting symbolism. Yeah, I have to, I have to think about this more. This idea of... of Nissa Nissa being imprisoned and then escaping. Again, I think this might be the thing that once we get T-Wow and we can see Sansa leave the veil, we'll maybe know a lot more about how this happened. Uh, so, uh, Jane, well, Jane, okay, so let's think about Jane Poole. She jumped off the, uh, off the wall with Theon, right? And kind of got rescued, but lost some bits and came out looking almost kind of Stoneheart-like, I guess, right? She got frostbite, which is ice... Symbol, ice transformation symbolism. Well, and Sansa again, because the the rumor that goes around is that she turned into a bat, or she turned into a wolf with like dragon or bat wings and flew out of the tower. So she also is, you know, fly, you know, flies or falls out of the tower, and then becomes and then goes to the veil and gets turned to stone ice. Yeah, so that's true. Yeah, it's it's not quite the same order as the Jane Pool, as the Jane Pool one. So. 
I wonder if there's anything with Ariane. I don't, I'm not as familiar with her chapters, but I mean, Ariane has the chapter that's literally the, the princess in the tower. <laughs> I think she does think of it. She does think of jumping out of the tower, as does Sansa, doesn't she? When she's sort of in that sort of interim period, she's like really depressed because Ned's died. And then she thinks of jumping out of the tower then. Right. Um, You're talking about Ariane, right? Yeah, Ariane. So in that chapter, The Princess in the Tower, there are two old ones quotes that I have not gotten to because there's too many and haven't fucking got enough time to do it. <laughs> so the first one, uh, it's it's about the meals that are brought to her. It said um, her, you know, the meals turned into old ones or the old ones she left at the door or something, which is like kind of like, well, what does that mean? She's eating old ones. Is this like weird paste stuff or something? Maybe, I don't know. Some Makes sort me of think of... Blood Raven's cave filled with all of the old bones and like sacrificing to a weirwood tree. Right. There's a consumption sacrifice symbolism. Um, and then the more interesting one is um, when finally Doran appears and they start talking and he shares his plan like 20 years too late or whatever. Um, <laughs> and he's saying, he's telling her that, oh, we had a husband for you. The reason I was proposing marriages to people you would reject is because I wanted to make it seem like I was trying to marry you, but didn't want you to get married because I have a husband for you. And she was like, oh, who was, and, you know, but he's dead now. And then she's like, oh, who was this? You know, the old ones are so frail. And it's, of course, Viserys. So Viserys is a dragon person who takes on some cold symbolism. Um, and, of course, uh, Viserion is the white dragon named after Viserys. And so he's an old one. And... He was supposed to marry Ariane, the princess in the tower. So I haven't put all that together yet. Maybe we can talk about that this week and revisit that next uh, next week. But it's funny that you mentioned that chapter because it happens to have Old Ones quotes in it. Ground up Old Ones turned into paste. They never get away. It's just George right. is just throwing. He just puts it all in there and we can never quite get rid of it. Cool. So at that, um, I'm not sure. Like I said, we'll talk during the week and see who's available Next Sunday, I'm putting everyone on the spot, so no need to, you know, confirm or deny or whatever. But I'm hopefully we can get everyone back, or maybe Amanda if she's free too, uh, and bring her in. But we'll we'll reconvene as much of the panels possible next week, and uh, could carry this on because uh, this is great. I love everything that we've developed here. Thank you so much, ladies, for coming on and sharing your wisdom. The wisdom of, uh, well, none of you are crones, but definitely the wisdom of the goddess, shall we say. So thank you. And let's go through. What was that? I'm a crone. <laughs> I'm a crone. Crone at heart, maybe. <clears throat> so let's um, let's go ahead and uh, share your links and your pages one last time, and we'll call it a, call it a wrap. Eh, my name's San Rixian. <laughs> okay, that's way too hard for me to do. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm San Rixian on Twitter, and you can find me at sanrixian.com if you want merch. And there's a link to my art bio there. And their mythical astronomy of ice and fire shirts. Burr, 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 burr. Now available. Burr, 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 burr. That's it. <laughs> Next. <laughs> Melanie? I'm Melanie Lot 7. You can find me on YouTube at Melanie Lot 7 and also on Twitter at Melanie Lot 7, but the number not spelled out. And yeah, what a fun stream. Oh my gosh, this was great. Wasn't it though? Gretchen. 
Um, I am GN Ellis writer on Twitter. Um, you can find my website, gnls.com, where I've written forms of my essays. If you want video essays, then it is Baal the Bard on YouTube um, with the apostrophe Baal because I'm an ancient Near Eastern languages person and a big nerd. So that's how you can find me. Nerds, nerds. Emma, go ahead. Um, so I am at ELSmith1994 on Twitter. Um, I, you can also find my work at um, redmiceatplay.wordpress.com and I've got a sort of fiery colour series and some other stuff. And I promise another essay will be on there soon. <laughs> Excellent. So thank you all for coming on. And uh, just I'm so happy with how this came out. Looks like everyone was happy in the chat. And I'm going to have to we're going to have to keep talking about this throughout the week, develop some of these ideas, come back with some good stuff to say about Maggie and Cersei. Um, I haven't even hardly written any of that. I just really have the quotes pulled. So we'll, we'll brainstorm during the week and come back hopefully next week. I guess I should say either next week or two weeks from now. If everyone like can't make it next week, but they can in two weeks, then we'll do it then. But pretty soon we're going to have to start switching over to the TV show coverage because that's coming like in three, four weeks or something like that. I mean, it's coming soon. So, yeah, it's very exciting. Very exciting. They're going to crash all the puzzle pieces together. Smash, boom. Yeah, I'm trying to, I had one other announcement. I'm trying to remember what it was. Um... Yeah. Uh, okay. So, if you would like to donate to the Con of Thrones fund for myself, that is PayPal.me/MythicalAstronomy. Um, I do appreciate that. For those of you who have the means to fund the con trip, of course, it costs money, and you know, I'll bring you back all the videos and all the good stuff. We're gonna actually do some streams from Con of Thrones. I don't know if we'll be able to do a live stream from Ice and Fire Con because of the internet connection, but we will if we can. So there you go. There's me passing the hat around real quick. And uh, with that, I will thank you all. And uh, yeah, that's it. Have a good Sunday, guys. Cheers. Bye. Bye.